Hello my friends, welcome back to Gardo Goes Geek. On today's episode, in celebration of the 20th anniversary of the cinematic release of Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring, I'm going to be looking at the Lord of the Rings film trilogy, uh, how it came to be, uh, some fun tidbits in its making, and the adaptations from the book it was originally based on. Hope you'll join me. There's some interesting facts in here, some nice little stories and anecdotes, and it's an exploration of turning a seminal piece of work, um, which was once decried as unfilmable even by its own author, into a masterpiece of cinema. The story of Lord of the Rings begins, as many people would expect, with uh, an introduction to its author. John Ronald Rule Tolkien, born in 1892, um, was an English writer, poet, uh, philologist and academic um, with a fascination with mythology and language. Philology itself being the uh, the study of language in oral and written historical sources. Um, he was especially fascinated with um, legends, such as a lot of the Norse and Anglo-Saxon uh, legends and myths. And in his career uh, as an academic, became a professor of both Anglo-Saxon and a professor of English language and literature. Um at both Pembroke College and Merton College in Oxford um, between the years of 1925 and 1959. He was a close friend of uh, C.S. Lewis, um, the author of the Chronicles of Narnia series. Um, both of them formed, well, formed along with others, an informal literary discussion group known as the Inklings. Um, Tolkien was also made a... A commander of the Order of the British Empire, uh, Warden OBE, um, shortly before his death in 1973. He was awarded, given the award in 1972. Tolkien's fascination with mythology and language started very early on. When he was a student, he was studying a lot of ancient um stories um one in particular he was fascinated was the story of beowulf um a very classic um norse anglo-saxon um story and one of the things that uh tolkien wanted to do was to create an english mythology um he felt that england had no mythology itself um due to the end of the anglo-saxon period coming with the defeat um at the battle of hastings uh, with the norman invasion in 1066 he felt that all anglo-saxon mythology had been eradicated from england and the closest we had to any sort of mythology since then, uh, namely the tales of something like King Arthur, for example. Um, the most famous iteration of King Arthur came from a French novel called La Mort d'Arthur. So, you know, King Arthur, he essentially considered French, not British, not English. 
Um, and so he wanted to create his own English mythology. Um, but he didn't do it originally himself. What he did as uh, as a, a recent graduate, um, shortly before he joined the trenches in World War One with a lot of his friends, um, was he and a group of others worked on the creation of languages, uh, invented languages specifically. Um, and this is where J.R.R. Tolkien created the languages of Elvish. Now, Tolkien... Um, had been fascinated with translating languages for years. He'd been translating Old Norse, um, various Old English and Middle English um, texts and dialects, and he'd worked on a lot of that for years. It was one of the things he ended up teaching in, as well, um, giving courses in like Old English heroic verse. Um, but yeah, Old Norse was one he specifically liked. Um, and he was attracted to a lot of the original English languages as well, such as Gaelic and Welsh. But yeah, it was in his teens where he first started um, creating his own languages. Um, he first started with a, a reconstruction of the unrecorded Germanic language, which may have been spoken by the people of Beowulf, um, Again, like I said, Beowulf was a fascination of his, so he started by creating what that language could have sounded like, what it could have looked like. Um, but then, yes, the elven tongues, not elfish, um, was what he started to create in uh, 1910, 1911. And the first one he created was Quenya, um, but the more famous one that he created was probably Sindarin. Um, Sindarin is the main elvish language, elvin language used in the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit. And the creation of a mythology to explain that language is what led to the creation of the Lord of the Rings. The reason for this being that Tolkien was of the opinion that the invention of an artistic language um, to be convincing and pleasing must include not only the language's historical development, but also the his history of its speakers, and especially the mythology associated with both the language and the speakers. Um, so it was because of this that he decided that the Elvish language would have to be associated with the complex history and mythology of the elves, and that formed the basis of the work that would later be known as Tolkien's Legendarium. Most of the Legendarium refers to the works that Tolkien worked on throughout the decades um, that remain unpublished in his lifetime, but were summarised in the compilation The Silmarillion, which was released by his son um, after his death, uh, as well as in the 12-volume series The History of Middle-earth. Um, the first known origination of anything in the Legendarium was in 1914, um, where, even while serving in the First World War, Tolkien began writing poems and story sketches, drawing maps and inventing languages and names as part of his project to create this English mythology. Um, the earliest story drafts were from 1916, um, shortly before Tolkien fought in the Battle of the Somme. 
and Tolkien continued revising and rewriting these for most of his adult life. Now, it's quite likely that most of this, as I said, most of it was unpublished, and most of it would have remained unpublished, probably, had um, had Tolkien not found success with another work. Now, according to Tolkien's own recollections, he began work on what would become The Hobbit um, one day in the 1930s while marking school certificate papers. Uh, he found a blank page and suddenly inspired wrote the words, In a hole in the ground there lived a hobbit. He then uh, completed the work The Hobbit, uh, which he designed as a children's story. He read it to his own children, um, but completed the manuscript by the end of 1932 and lent it to several friends, including C.S. Lewis and a student of his named Elaine Griffiths. In 1936, Griffiths was visited in Oxford by Susan Dagnall, uh, a staff member of the publisher George Allen and Unwin, and she is reported to have either lent Dagnall the book or suggested that Dagnall borrow it from Tolkien. Uh, but in any event, Dagnall was impressed by it and showed it to Stanley Unwin, who then asked his 10-year-old son Rainer to review it. And it was Rainer's favourable comments that led uh, Alan and Unwin to publish The Hobbit in 1937. Now, The Hobbit, I probably don't need to explain too much, was the story of a hobbit, Bilbo Baggins, who is um, visited by a company of dwarves and a wizard named Gandalf, and... Uh, embroiled by them to be their burglar on a quest to reclaim their lost mountain home from a vicious dragon named Smaug. Um, the story is very, very good. Each chapter is almost like a, a mini story in itself, but they're all connected by part of this larger adventure. Um and yeah if, if it's it's a charming story it's it's very much a, a a kids story and a very fantasy fairy tale almost story but it proceeded to receive very very wide critical acclaim uh it was nominated for a carnegie medal it was awarded a prize from the new york herald tribune for best juvenile fiction and it remains popular and a classic of literature to this very day and as a result of that, um, Alan and Unwin, especially Stanley Unwin, began asking for a sequel to The Hobbit. And that was what prompted J.R.R. Tolkien to begin writing what would become The Lord of the Rings. It was while writing the sequel to The Hobbit that J.R.R. Tolkien went back to the mythology that he had written years before to create the Lord of the Rings. Um, now, he saw the Lord of the Rings itself as being just a small part of the myth that he'd created. Um, and it eventually turned into something much bigger than just a sequel for The Hobbit. It took 12 years to write, and... Um, with several rewrites and every time 
um J.R.R. Tolkien did a rewrite. He he literally rewrote the entire novel from the start each time. Um he also described it himself more as a a sequel to the Silmarillion, um, you know, the the works that he'd been working on in private, um, due to the greater focus on the mythology and the more adult tone of the novel. He described it as an adult fairy tale um, as well, because um, Tolkien had been very outspoken in that fairy tales should be something that adults could enjoy as well. And yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting novel. It was also while writing Lord of the Rings that he went back to The Hobbit as well and reworked parts of that to make it more in line with the, the sequel that he was currently writing, um, including a very large rewrite of a chapter in The Hobbit called The Riddles in the Dark. Uh, Riddles in the Dark is the chapter in The Hobbit where Bilbo obtains the magic ring from the creature Gollum. Now, they play a game of riddles, and in the original version of The Hobbit, Gollum lets Bilbo go um, once Bilbo wins the game of riddles. Um, and I think as well, the magic ring is part of a gift, in a way, to Bilbo. However... In the new version of Riddles in the Dark, the ring becomes the, the main object of the game. It's something that Bilbo has obtained himself beforehand. And Gollum turns on Bilbo. And it is only Bilbo pitying Gollum that allows Gollum to escape unscathed. So yeah, the Riddles in the Dark chapter was completely overhauled as part of the rewrite. Now, The Lord of the Rings is a very unusual book. Um, it was written as six books with six appendices um, as one story. Um, what I mean in this definition of book is what I mean is each book is a collection of several chapters of the novel, um, about, about about a dozen apiece, so t 10 to 14, I think, is the, the average number um, of chapters um, detailing part of the story, um, usually with some sort of climatic event towards the end of that particular book, um, and for a lot of the books throughout the story, there is a perspective shift as well as you move into the next one. Now, um, the original intention of Tolkien was that The Lord of the Rings and The Silmarillion would be two volumes of the same work that would be released. Um, unfortunately, that never happened. Lord of the Rings was the, uh, the you know, the publisher passed on The Silmarillion. Uh, at the time, and they went with the Lord of the Rings. The Lord of the Rings then, for economic reasons, um, mainly uh, post-war paper shortages, um, meant that it was cheaper to publish it as um, smaller novels. And that's where you get the divisions into the trilogy, um, which were Fellowship of the Ring, The Two Towers, 
and the return of the king um and those were then published over the course of a year uh between 1954 and 1955 um with each of those two books per volume so the first two books form fellowship of the ring the second two form the two towers the last two and the appendices form return of the king um there were obviously releases over the years since that have um, put the entire work into one volume as part of um, Tolkien's original intent. Now, the book initially had uh, a very mixed reception uh, by the literary establishment. Um, it's a very divisive work in some respects. It's very, very atypical um the main villain is never really shown he's you know sauron is a present threat throughout the novel but we never have him encounter any of the heroes you know the main villain of the the piece is the ring um the opening of the novel book one is is very very long it takes like a good uh 12 chapters 12 14 chapters before we get to any sort of huge story um purposes towards the later part of the work um characters are often left unexplored for large chapters if not whole books um for example um once two towers starts books 3 and 5 will focus on uh, most of the Fellowship characters, so for example, Merry, Pippin, Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli, whereas books four and six focus on Frodo and Sam and their continuing journey towards Mount Doom to destroy the ring. Um, I should say I'm, I'm just talking about plot elements for Lord of the Rings, as I assume at this point most people are familiar with either the films or the novel of the lord of the rings um either first hand or by cultural osmosis everyone knows what the lord of the rings is now the what this means is this this division of characters um per book is that you spend large portions of either work um so for example if you're reading the two towers uh you spend the entire first half of the book not knowing anything about what has happened to Frodo and Sam since we last saw them at the end of Fellowship. And then um, once you start reading book four of The Two Towers, you no longer know, you, you get to a point where you don't know anything of what's happening to Aragorn, Legolas, Gimli, Merry, Pippin, Theoden, Saruman, anything beyond what is happening to Frodo and Sam until you start reading Return of the King. Which is a very, very interesting way to to take the story. Um, not only that, several important events don't really occur within the story. They're related to us via a uh, flashback. So, for example, in book one, um, Gandalf leaves Frodo and says he'll meet him in Bree. Um, Frodo and the others arrive in Bree several chapters later, and Gandalf hasn't been seen. 
we then don't see Gandalf until shortly before the Council of Elrond. And it's there that we learn what actually happened to Gandalf and why he was waylaid for so long. Um, or, for example, the um, the March of the Ents is told through flashback when Aragorn, Legolas and Gimli arrive in um, Isengard. And we see that Merry Pippin and Treebeard have conquered it. Um, so, yeah, it's a, it's a bizarre book. A very good book. Um, but, you know, it it became extraordinarily popular um, over the years. It went on to become the second most read of the book of the 20th century, behind only the Bible, um, which gives you an idea of just how ever-present The Lord of the Rings is. It's the archetypical fantasy book. Um, most fantasy settings are based on or inspired by um, the Lord of the Rings in terms of the, you know, the stereotypical fantasy races, for example, like dwarves, elves, and men, are in everything because they were in Lord of the Rings. So Dungeons and Dragons, um, most video games you can think of that take a fantasy setting, uh, Warhammer, etc., all follow a blueprint laid down by the Lord of the Rings. And that's not counting as well. The the artworks, music, films, televisions, video games, board games, uh, radio adaptations, everything that was inspired directly by the Lord of the Rings. Um, yeah, it was a very it's a it's a it's a good book, and it has a lasting impact on um, people. It's become studied uh intensely many people have uh, done extensive analysis of the the themes and origins of the lord of the rings there are people who specialize in uh in being a scholar of tolkien's works um the lord of the rings chief among them now as i said it was originally published as a trilogy um, the titles for the trilogy Fellowship and The Two Towers were both titled by uh, Tolkien himself. Return of the King was the title suggested by the publisher. Um, and it was a title that Tolkien was not a fan of. He prefer preferred the title The War of the Ring. He felt that Return of the King gave away the um, inclusion of the story. Um but I suppose there is kind of a, an abstract nature as you don't know which king. Um, you know, the speculation is Aragorn, but it could also... Um, it could also speculate Sauron. Um, two Towers is never actually explained as to the which two towers the novel seems to be refer referring to. Uh, the common thought, um, especially off the back of the film, is Isengard and Barad-dûr which is the Tower of Sauron, Isengard, the Tower of Orthanka, Isengard, being the um, the Tower of Saruman. Um, but it could just as likely be uh, the Towers of Minas Tirith and Minas Morgul, um, the Tower of... Uh, the Tower of Barad-dûr and the Tower of Kirithungol. There's many, many two towers that could be... There's a lot of towers in Middle-earth. Um... 
that it could be mentioning. The book uh, is quite famous for featuring something called Eucatastrophe. Uh, Eucatastrophe is a term coined by Tolkien himself, um, using the prefix "u" before the word catastrophe to indicate the opposite of a catastrophe, uh, whereas at the greatest moment of despair, a positive outcome will occur. Um, this is something he'd also done to some extent in uh, The Hobbit. Uh, there's plenty of points in The Hobbit where things seem their most bleak um, for our heroes, and then something will happen out of nowhere that turn, changes the fortunes. Um, for example, Bard the Bowman um, being able to kill Smaug during his attack on Lake Town, or um, the arrival of the Eagles during the Battle of the Five Armies. And, you know, Lord of the Rings is full of similar moments. Um, and they are tremendously positive moments for the reader. Um, you know, moments where armies arrive to help beleaguered cities or um, characters come to each other's rescue. They're beautiful moments to read and lovely to see. Um, Lord of the Rings is also often cited as being an allegorical work. Uh, people have compared it to uh, the rise of Nazism, to... Um, Tolkien's experiences in World War One, um, East and West divides, um, all sorts of things like that. Tolkien accepts that there accepted that there may be influences on his work, but he he himself specifically decried it as being an allegorical work. Um, in the introduction, he. He was a professor of uh, literature and language, so I'm inclined to agree with him on this because the man knew what he was talking about. If he says there's no allegory there, there is no direct allegory there. Um, I think all works have an element of some politics within them, um, unintentional or intentional, but I think if anyone would know how to make a work as intentionally non-allegorical as possible, it is someone with the experience and knowledge of J.R.R. Tolkien. Um, he personally had a disdain for allegory, but he does say that an applicability remains within the work, allowing readers to draw allegory over the de over the decades... Um, but there are themes in the work that are deliberate, but aren't necessarily allegorical. allegorical. Um, the main themes of the work are the seductive evil, um, so the power of the ring and how it can corrupt normal people to evil. Um, the idea of plurality versus the one, um, the armies of Sauron, are one force, one one goal in mind, whereas it's the 
the many races that stand against them, the free peoples of Middle-earth um, that are able to defeat them. So the armies of Rohan, Gondor, the elves, the dwarves, the hobbits, um, the clash of nature versus industry, um, for example, with the Ent March on Isengard. And one of my favourite themes in the work is the power of the underestimated um, a lot of people, for example, like to cite that, uh, especially people who have only seen the films, um, that, oh, they could have just taken the eagles and dropped the ring in Mount Doom. Ignoring the fact that, one, the eagles are sentient in, in and of themselves and might not agree to do so, but it's specifically because Frodo was the one carrying the ring that he's able to succeed. Um the eagles are a big statement piece. You know, you can Sauron would see them coming for miles and know their of their arrival and prepare for it. Hobbits are underestimated. At several points in the work, they're even underestimated by their friends, by their um you know, by their comrades in the fellowship. Even Gandalf himself underestimates them at certain points. But the four hobbits themselves, not just Frodo and Sam, but Merry and Pippin as well, are responsible for several amazing points in the story. It's their manipulations that wake the Ents up, that allow Gandalf to meet up with Aragorn, um, that save Faramir's life, and importantly, destroy the ring. You know, four diminutive hobbits. You know, and this goes back to the novel The Hobbit itself. It's, um, you know, Bilbo being this unassuming burglar being used by the dwarves. The dwarves quite often disregard Bilbo for a shorter stature than them and also his, um, you know, his, his very different attitude to theirs. And yet, Bilbo is the one able to, you know, get into the mountain. He's the one able to talk to Smaug. He's the one able to to get the Arkenstone and everything that they're after. So, yeah. Um, people are also talking about the war, um, the War of the Ring, and the... Uh, allegories compared to comparing to um, Tolkien's experiences in World War One. Um, Tolkien hated war um, uh, in his experiences in World War One and on the Battle of the Somme would probably be a large part of that. A lot of his friends that he served with died. Um, people who were in clubs with him as a as a graduate and as a young student died um a lot of his close friends who he shared his writings with died so tolkien definitely had a hatred of war but i think he saw that the war of the ring was something that needed to be fought um in a similar way to Maybe not World War One, which was um, a bit more of a futile war if you look back on it in history, in historical context. But World War Two, especially, which he was writing 
Lord of the Rings um, during the backdrop of, um, I think everyone can agree that World War Two was something that needed to be fought. Um, Nazis needed to be opposed. And the evil that the Nazis presented is similar to the evil that Sauron presents. as something that needs to be opposed. Um... Yeah, um, the appendixes in the Lord of the Rings, I've not really explained them, they are sort of extra material that Tolkien wanted to include, but for whatever reason couldn't fit within the into the actual story without setting its balance. Um, Tolkien does describe several of them as quite important. Um, there's the history of the Fellowship through the early Fourth Age, sort of explaining what happens to the characters of Legolas, Gimli, Aragorn, Merry, Pippin, etc. Um, which is quite a nice, nice one to actually see. There's the tale of Aragorn and Arwen, um, a love story that is between one of the main characters and his elven princess. Um, mm -hmm. Which is one that, again, Tolkien described as particularly important to one of his his favourite pieces of the appendices, but he was was not able to include um, without disrupting the flow of the novel. Um, Return of the King, especially, is also I wouldn't say rushed, but the book definitely speeds up. As it approaches the climax, there are um, things that would have been elaborated into several pages in if they were in Fellowship or the Two Towers. Um, maybe only get a paragraph or two in Return of the King. Return of the King is a a very very dense part of the trilogy. There's a lot that happens in it. Um, and I, th I think that's one of the reasons as well why people might have decried it as unfilmable for years. Like I said, even Tolkien sold the film rights for The Lord of the Rings quite early on, very, very cheaply, thinking that he it wouldn't be able to be filmed. For myself, um, I do like The Lord of the Rings novel. Uh, I'm not necessarily the hugest fan of Tolkien's writing um I do think his prose can be very very involved with descriptions and it can be somewhat dense in points but it is incredibly imaginative very very descriptive and you do feel enveloped by the world of Middle Earth as you read it um I do think it's slow to start. Book one is a bit of a chore to get through. Um, it's only once you arrive in Rivendell um, at the start of book two that the story really starts to progress. Um, there are some odd characters and arcs which can become at odds with things presented. Um, for example, we spend a lot of fellowship of the ring building the the ring up as this huge powerful corrupting influence we see how it corrupts um 
Boromir, what it did to Gollum. And then in book four, uh, Frodo encounters Faramir, who is Boromir's brother. And Faramir is able to refuse the ring um, straight away. <laughs> um, or, for example, um, Aragorn, who is in his 80s, and is well known as the the heir of Elendil and Isildur, and wants to return to the king of to become king of Gondor. But as I said, this is a man in his eighties who hasn't done it yet, and it's you're not sure why he hasn't done it yet. It's you know. If this is something he's determined to do, why has he not made more effort to do it? Why has he not returned to the throne of Gondor or tried to rebuild Arnor in the north? Yeah, uh, I. It's a it's a good novel. I do do enjoy it, but I I must admit I haven't reread it in a while, and some bits I probably remember less fondly than others. Um. I think myself, it's probably been at least a good 15 years since I've read it, and I probably owe it another read at some point. Yeah. Um, Lord of the Rings, I should point out, was also very, very popular um, after its release with hippies and counterculture protesters um, due to the themes of fighting war and corruption and the environmental protection, the, the nature versus industry that I mentioned earlier. Um, so I became more familiar as a child um, with the concepts within The Lord of the Rings, um, certain characters and themes, due to predominantly the music of Led Zeppelin. Um, my father used to listen to Led Zeppelin an awful lot, and I grew up listening to them. And there's many, many, many references in a lot of Led Zeppelin's music to the works of Tolkien. Um, and Led Zeppelin are far from the only band that included such references. Um, I also listened to, when I was a kid... Um, a lot of the 1981 BBC Radio 4 adaptation that was done, um, which is incredible, a very, very good um, take on The Lord of the Rings. It makes a lot of changes to the novel, well, some changes to the novel, some omissions and deviations from the novel um, that would also be echoed in the works of Peter Jackson later on when he adapted Lord of the Rings. Um, for example, the removal of the character of Tom Bombadil um, and tightening up of certain story elements in the early part of the book, um, as well as including uh, the revised Riddles in the Dark chapter um, and several other you know, presenting events in flashbacks that we are actually able to to witness and experience and melding the storylines so not following the the book three book four approach it's 
and and that as well uh, if you can ever track it down i highly recommend it it's a very very good story it's got a lot of quite prime british acting talent um the part of frodo himself is played by ian holm who went on to play bilbo in the film adaptation uh sam is played by bill nye uh, an actor probably most famous um for his roles in Shaun of the dead and pirates of the caribbean um to a lot of people um uh, but he was also in love actually and several other films uh very very good actor um he plays sam in it he's brilliant at it um john lemessure of um dad's army uh played the role of bilbo baggins and um aragorn the character of strider is played by sir robert stevens um uh, who is a tremendous theater actor one time regarded as one of the the natural successors to Laurence olivier um and yeah he does a, a brilliant job as aragorn in the the work it's it's um 26 episodes 26 half hour episodes and i'd highly recommend that to anyone but we're not here today to talk about the radio we're going or the novel uh, but we are here to talk about the film adaptation now peter J jackson's adaptation of the lord of the rings was not the first uh, attempt to film the work um previous attempts to film it had been made by uh, many people and usually resulted in a couple of unproduced scripts concept art or an animated short but not really much else um, people including uh, Peter Schaefer Walt Disney Forrest Ackerman uh, George Lucas had all been involved in attempting to develop Lord of the Rings as a film at some point um, the rights passed through the hands of many, many different studios um, before they were eventually sold perpetually to United Artists. Uh, in 1976, United Artists passed the rights to The Lord of the Rings and part of the rights to The Hobbit to fantasy films. That led to uh, an animated adaptation in 1977 of The Hobbit, uh, produced by Rankin and Bass, and in 1978, Ralph Bakshi made an animated feature of the first half of Lord of the Rings. Now, while profitable, the film didn't make enough money to automatically warrant the sequel, uh, which would close the story. Um, one of the things that I was fearing might happen, for example, with Dune uh, by Dallas Villanueva. Um, so, you know, these things do happen where part of the story is made, but the the second one, even if successful, doesn't automatically get off the ground. Um, there was arguments between Bakshi and one of the producers as well that led him to abandon the project, and Rankin and Bass then followed in 1980 with an animated TV adaptation of The Return of the King. Um, several other Tolkien-esque fantasy films were developed at the time, including Jim Henson and Frank Oz's Dark Crystal and George Lucas's Willow. Um, 
but getting a proper live action Lord of the Rings seemed unlikely. Now, Peter Jackson, as a teenager, hadn't read the book, um, but upon watching Bakshi's films, uh, he said he in enjoyed it, um, but the fact that the story hadn't been finished, it made him want to read the book to find out what happened. Um, he later read The Hobbit and The Silmarillion, listened to the BBC One uh, radio adaptation, um, BBC One, sorry, just BBC Radio adaptation. Um, and he always assumed someone would eventually adapt it into a live-action film, but no one did. Um, now, in 1995, while he was completing post-production on The Frighteners, uh, Jackson and his partner, Fran Walsh, discussed making an original fantasy film, but couldn't think of any scenarios that weren't Tolkien-esque. This is what I mean when I say that Lord of the Rings had this huge impact on the fantasy genre and that most things are Tolkien-esque, um, you know, in similar sort of ways to his works. So it was at that point that they decided to look up the film rights and they went to Harvey Weinstein at Miramax, who had recently acquired the rights from Saul Zaints, who was the producer on the uh, Ralph Bakshi film. Jackson knew that it would take multiple films to do Lord of the Rings justice and pitched uh, a single trilogy. One film based on The Hobbit, and then if that would prove successful, two Lord of the Rings films shot back to back. Um, however, it turned out that The Hobbit rights were unattainable because they had been split between uh, Saul Zaints and United Artists. Weinstein tried to buy uh, United Artists' share of the rights but was unsuccessful. So, with The Hobbit postponed for a later prequel, Jackson proceeded with making two Lord of the Rings films, uh, pitched the idea of uh, three films, and Miramax didn't want to take that risk, so they agreed on two. While writing the script and working on storyboards and discussing casting ideas, etc., um, he used his own um, acquisitions, Weta Workshop and Weta Digital, to begin working on uh, props, concept art, software development, etc., However, as the scripts began to take shape, um, Miramax started to panic. Um, the budget required for these films would have exceeded their capabilities, and the Weinsteins suggested cutting the project to one film. Jackson inquired whether the film would be around four hours um, in duration, but Miramax insisted on doing it in two hours suggesting major cuts to the Lord of the Rings story, which Jackson refused to do. Uh, Harvey Weinstein threatened to replace Jackson with another screenwriter um, and another director, including potentially John Madden or Quentin Tarantino, uh, which Jackson believes was an empty threat uh, to get him to concede. But what happened was... 
was that Jackson shopped around and eventually got an audience with a CEO of New Line, uh, Robert Shea, who Jackson pitched him the two film project. And Shea said, surely this should be a trilogy. So, yeah, it was that decision that meant that Jackson took his uh, his final work, uh, you know, all the pre-production he'd been doing under Miramax, and went and took the film to New Line Entertainment. Now, there were uh, several changes uh, had to be made to The Lord of the Rings, obviously, even to accommodate the trilogy. Uh, several scenes and subplots had to be cut um the big one of the biggest removals in the early part of the story is the removal of tom bombadil uh as i said tom bombadil was a bit of a distraction of a character even in the original uh novel uh and the bbc radio adaptation also omitted him i'm sorry my phone keeps going i do apologize uh, one of the other major cuts was the scouring of the shire uh, towards the end of the story. Uh, the Scouring of the Shire, for those who aren't familiar with it, uh, involves the hobbits returning back to the Shire uh, to find that Saruman has taken over and that he was their experience gained um, during the War of the Ring and the leadership qualities that they've, they've gained to uh, lead the Shire into rebellion and defeat Saruman. It's... An interesting plot thread in the book uh, because it finalises the conclusion of their character growth. And also in the the original book, Saruman is presented as sort of independent from Sauron uh, in a lot of respects, as just another threat. Um, but for the films, they changed that and made Saruman more subservient i suppose to uh to sauron other characters other things from the novel were moved around lines were given to other characters lines that maybe were in descriptions were turned into dialogue um things like shelob and the stairs of kirathungol were moved to return of the king so that it didn't intercut with the helm's deep battle um in the two towers however that also fits the timeline of the novel um due to the ways that books four five uh three four five and six were written um book four overlaps with the or the entirety of book three and the first half of book five um but this only becomes apparent to the reader when tolkien in several chapters will indicate that something is happening at the same time as something in a previous book. Um, so, for example, uh, one of Frodo's encounters with Faramir, I believe, is stated to be around the same time as the Battle of Helm's Deep. Um, and one of, you know, uh, the, the Ride of the Rohirrim, is stated to be at the same time as Frodo and Sam were ascending the stairs to Kirith Ungol. Um, but this only becomes apparent when you read the novel. Um, so if you actually look at the timeline, things that are in the Two Towers novel actually fit better with the timeline of Return of the King. Um, 
there was a, a, a very strong desire on the part of the filmmakers to attempt to always stay true to what Tolkien wrote, uh, even when adding scenes or as actors grew to uh grew to empathize with their characters um the characters the actors were given input um in to you know they were allowed to make inputs in uh line delivery or to add things but always with the intention to keep it within the spirit of the characters and within the spirit of the original writing um so to fit with the original story or to use similar wording in some respects as well um, due to the very particular way of Tolkien's prose. However, some drastic changes did have to be made uh, to accommodate the transformation into film. Uh, for example, the Council of Elrond, which is a large scene. Uh, it's, it's definitely one long chapter. It may even take place over a couple of chapters in the novel. Um, which is used mainly as a way of setting the stage. You know, this is where we find out um, about Saruman. This is where we find out about the the armies in the north, um, Angmar. Um, you know, all these Dol Guldur and, and all these things like that that are, that are threats to the wider world of Middle Earth. Um, as well as as well as the question of what to do with the ring is just streamlined to keep the focus on the ring and Frodo's acceptance of the responsibility of destroying it. Or Faramir, for example, who his character arc changes in that he is he's tempted by the ring and succumbs to it um due to the the built up evilness and seductive nature of the ring across the first movie. Um, and as a result becomes an obstacle for Frodo to overcome. Um, personally, that's a, a change I'm totally in favour with. As I said, I don't think um, Faramir just having tea and letting Frodo go, I, I think it undercuts the how the ring has been built up, you know, in the work as the ring is this malevolent threat. And for, for for Faramir to, uh, you know, to to be quite calm with it is uh, bizarre. I do think as well that change to Faramir helps to give Faramir a more complete arc um, throughout the story as well, especially in the Two Towers. There was also a focus um, by Jackson and the other filmmakers to include Aragorn and Arwen, um, and their relationship due to Tolkien's description of their story as the most important appendix. Um, for those who aren't aware, um, Aragorn and Arwen is based on the story of Beren and Luthien, which is a story that appears in Cimmerillion and was also turned into its own uh, novel. Um, Beren and Luthien were... Luthien is an elf woman who gives up her immortality to love a man uh, named Beren. Um, Tolkien and his wife both have on their gravestones um, the names Beren and Luthien, respectively. Um, it was, was very, very clear that this was a love story that 
Tolkien was very, very invested in and saw, um, you know, in the love that he and his wife shared. So um, having Aragorn and Arwen be an important echo of that, um, it, it's no wonder he saw it as important. There are also some other changes which are not in the novel or even implied. For example, the uh, the addition of the elves to the Battle of Helm's Deep uh, to give that action scene a more hopeful note against the uh, the large opposing force, which is a uh, an element of the catastrophe that you would have got in within the novel. Um, you know, there is something stirring to a viewer to see the elves arrive at Helm's Deep, even though it's you know, even the most ardent Tolkien fans would, would find fault with it. Um, but, you know, the elves were fighting in the War of the Ring as well. You know, war did come to Lothlorien and to Rivendell uh, and to Mirkwood as well. So the fact that the elves are at the battle is something that should happen. Um a lot of these changes, though, as the films were released, uh, the changes in Two Towers especially were considered controversial uh, compared to the changes in Fellowship, despite uh, screenwriter Philippa Boyens saying that there were probably more changes in Fellowship. Um, but they all serve the story and they serve the adaptation. For example, giving Two Towers a narrative climax Um which it doesn't have uh, in the novel because it was never intended to be a standalone novel or it was you know it was intended to be part of a larger work the middle chapter of a of a large body of work um there were copies of the novel everywhere in production um peter jackson had copies most of the actors had copies um people in all levels of the production were had copies everywhere um there were almost daily rewrites as the writers director and actors all got input um into crafting scenes uh new scenes were generally only added though if they needed to be seen for the story um for example offering a different perspective or um uh you know or a necessary part of the adaptation again something like uh, frodo and sam's lines about stories at the climax of the two towers um to give that film a, a narrative climax um or you know for example to to illustrate things that were were flashbacks in in the novel such as gandalf's escape from orthanc um you know, is is a necessary addition to the to the film. Um, a lot of scenes also tried to have multiple purposes. Uh, so for example, Merry and Pippin's intro in Fellowship of the Ring is a very good example of this of being multi-purpose. It introduces the two characters. It creates a light moment at the party before some of the more unsettling natures about the origins of the ring is revealed. Um, and it uses the Smaug firework from the novel um, to create a big set piece. Um, so, you know, it's a scene that accomplishes three different tasks. Um, the intention was always to focus on the story of Frodo and the ring, uh, but obviously to 
embellish the characters around that. Um, so, for example, Arwen is one example of a character who is barely present in the book, who is given more development in the film, but it's usually using book material. Um, so, for example, it's Arwen who comes to say Frodo instead of Glorfindel. Um and take him to Rivendell. Glorfindel does this in the novel and is pretty much never seen again. Uh, <laughs> I think he briefly appears at the Council of Elrond and then is never seen again. Whereas um, Arwen doing it allows her to interact with Aragorn and to introduce her and, you know, take something that's a a role and taken by a side character and give it to a main character for the story. Um, Arwen was originally planned to be at Helm's Deep um, as well but with the other elves, but that was changed during production. Um, it was it was originally done that so that they could have scenes with her interacting with Aragorn um, to continue that love story, um, but they decided against it. Like I said, even earlier into adaptation. Um, to to follow the appendix more closely by using flashbacks in Rivendell to tell that story instead. They also... There was also a, an effort to make sure to include even um, descriptive moment, moments um, in the film. For example, um, where Frodo wakes up in Rivendell... Um, before shooting the scene, Ian McKellen reminded Sean Austin to grab Frodo's hand because he says in the novel, uh, Sam holds Frodo's hand in this scene, so people will be looking for that. I mean, it's inevitable that things would get changed as part of the adaptation, but I think there is very much a concerted effort on the part of the filmmakers to stay true to the themes of the Lord of the Rings, especially, and to stay true to the story. Um, you know, some chapters um, are, are moved around to, to match the storyline chronology and to match to structure the story better. Uh, for example, the confrontation with Saruman in the extended cut of Return of the King was originally meant to be the conclusion for Two Towers, but it wasn't working as the conclusion for Two Towers, so they didn't use it and instead decided to use it as the introduction of Return of the King. But even then, they were still struggling with it as part of the introduction there. Um, so omitted it from the theatrical cut. Um... And instead put it back in for the extended DVD. Um, other scenes like the Mouth of Sauron in Return of the King has less of an impact than it does in the novel uh, due to the change of the chronology. Because um, by the time that happens in Book 5 in Return of the King, we actually, as the reader, don't know that Frodo is alive. Uh, when we last he saw, we saw Frodo. He was being carried off by the orcs to Kirithungol, uh after being stabbed by Shelob. So, as a reader, we don't know if he's dead. We don't know how Sauron got the myth. You know, the mouth of Sauron got the mithril shirt. 
So, you know, while it's a good scene to film and you still have the the resolution of the characters like Aragorn, Gandalf, Merry and Pippin deciding not to believe the mouth, um, you know, that Sauron is dead, uh, that, sorry, that Frodo is dead, um, because we as an audience know that Frodo is still alive. It has a bit of less of an impact. So I can see why something like that was taken out um and only used for the extended cut because it doesn't make as much sense in the theatrical cut of the story now the entire trilogy of the lord of the rings was storyboarded um by jackson and his team those storyboards were then turned into a, a pretty basic animatic um, by literally filming the storyboards. Um, and that animatic was then enhanced with some basic voices and music, some like, you know, holdover temporary music and a few local actors in New Zealand who were brought in to voice the entire film. That animatic was then screened for all of the actors before filming allowing them to visualize the film. Which, it also worked for the filmmakers for that same purpose. So, you know, editors um, could be shown the basic look of how the film would look. And then that could then expand. Uh, they could they could develop from that original animatic. Um, some basic models were built to plan shots around, which which could then be used as a guide for set dressers or miniature makers later on so that Peter Jackson could get the exact same angle um, on the, the real finished model or the finished set that he'd been able to attain on the miniature model. Um, Back End, for example, was the first set built in order to work out the scene. Um you know, they acted the scene, they worked out where the cameras were, and it was just a rough bag end, you know, that wasn't decorated, it was literally just a wooden frame in the shape of bag end. Um, there was also a pre-visualisation done for the action sequences and effect shots, um, which is a way of previs essentially the transformation into early CGI elements, animated CGI elements. Um, or sometimes with models and other things. Um, that was all done with help and input from Rick McCallum and George Lucas, who at the time were working on the Star Wars prequel trilogy. Um, and it was based on their own work with those films. Um, this all allowed Jackson to get a 3D view of scenes and plan out how to shoot them um you know even the scenes that would have been that would end up being cgi creations or on miniatures or other things jackson had a plan to do the film and he apparently said this to all the filmmakers to view it as though lord of the rings was an actual history and they were going to be able to shoot in the locations where that history took place. Um, you know, the idea of building clothes, not costumes, of being, of building a building and not building sets. Um, and that was the, the, the sort of the methodology, the through line that went through, went through the production. 
Tolkien very early on recruited um, two illustrators who have been famously working on uh, Tolkien art for years. Um, chances are if you own an illustrated version of any of Tolkien's works, or whether it be a, a novel or a calendar or anything like that, chances are it involves one of these two people. They are Alan Lee and John Howe, uh, both of whom very readily agreed to be part of the project. Um, and both of whom were bought in early into the production, but at least a year of pre-production had was already underway. Um, Weta Workshop and Weta Digital were responsible for building sets, miniatures, CGI assets, um, all of it being done within the same studio, which meant everything could be designed with a, a very unified tone. Um, so, for example, sets, miniatures, and costumes, um, you know, for, say, the elves, would all have a similar design aesthetic. Um, there was a real attempt to incorporate the history and culture of Middle-earth into the film at every level, um, done by using, you know, for example, the, the ruins of Weathertop, um, feature references to the ancient Numenorians. Um, in some respects, certain scenes could be created um, based on concept art or miniature design. So, for example, uh, I believe it was John Howe created the Bridge of Khazad-dûm and drew a sketch of the stairs of Khazad-dûm, and he drew this winding, long diagonal staircase which then prompted Peter Jackson to craft an action sequence around that um, firstly by designing it with the miniature of how the uh, the fellowship would get down these stairs while under attack by orcs and being chased by the Balrog um, and then they eventually filmed that sequence um you know the the script apparently, according to the to Jackson and uh, Philippa Boyens, still says to this day the the Fellowship run down the stairs. But you know it's a five minute action sequence in the film of the Fellowship going down the stairs. Um, a lot of the real sets had to be uh, constructed. Um, so, for example, uh, Hobbiton, uh, at the location of Hobbiton, uh, was actually constructed in farmland uh, outside of Wellington, New Zealand, and the construction began about a year before filming, um, so that it would all look natural as everything grew. And it involved, for example, the the openings of all the hobbit holes, uh, a fake oak tree which sits on top of Bag End, which had to be fully created. Um, as well as all the gardens, the farmland, everything like that around Hobbiton. Um, Edoras was also constructed. Um, Edoras was is the um, the capital of Rohan, and it was filmed in an area of conservation, so it had to be restored after filming. Um, perfectly, exactly as it was left. So all grass and vegetation that was removed had to be kept in a nursery for 18 months. 
um, so that it could all be replanted after filming. So as part of the construction of Edoras, they also had to construct this this plant nursery for for grasses and vegetation that had been lifted from the top of this uh, small mountain peak. Um, you know, the, the golden hall of Edoras as well also had to be thatched. Uh, had It was described as having a thatched roof, which isn't something that is really a thing in New Zealand. Um, so the, the workshop team had to learn how to do thatching so that they can make a thatched roof. Um, you know, they used a device to create small hay bales that would allow them to do it. Um, so yeah, Edoras was built in around eight months and then shot on for eight days. All of the external shots on Edoras are, are done within the same eight-day window. Uh, Helm's Deep was built in separate parts as well as uh, built as a miniature. There was a miniature scale version of Helm's Deep. They were all built in the same quarry. So they're all uh, several, all the different versions of the set are several yards from each other. Um, lots of scenery from other sets um, once they'd been filmed on and destroyed were saved to be used for the ruins of Osgiliath, the city that is under assault from orcs outside of Minas Tirith across the river. Uh, the quarry that was used for Helm's Deep was then used for Minas Tirith after the uh, conclusion of the Helm's Deep filming. Uh, Minas Tirith was built to scale, um, so the actual set was huge and included the large working gates that are seen in the film, uh, as well as side streets leading off from uh, a large square, um, and several buildings and all these other things. So a lot of those uh, scenes in Minas Tirith are shot on the one redressed set, um, you know, quite large set in this quarry. Uh, Minas Tirith Citadel, um, was a large set that was placed in a, a huge warehouse. Um, yet, even though the warehouse was enormous, the, the the set itself was so big that to light it, they had to get permission from the harbour board to cut holes in the concrete walls of this enormous warehouse to light to the set inside. <sighs> It's, you know, just incredible the, the scale of things that they did and how much they were able to do real. How many of these sets are real and not locations. Because the thing is, there aren't locations that you could use for something like this. Um, which is something you don't think of until you read it or you, you hear them talking about it on the documentaries, on the appendices that are on the DVDs. Um Pickups and reshoots for all of the films were done in uh, Stone Street, uh, which I believe is the studio in Wellington where they were shooting. Um, they essentially describe it as things being done in the car park, but essentially it was a large open space um, where they were able to have multiple different sets um, at the same time. Uh, uh, and they were able to shoot scenes from throughout the trilogy altogether. 
um, sometimes several years after the original scenes filmed um, for the for the sets. Uh, so actors would be moved from one set to another uh, to complete scenes and reshoots. Uh, with Jackson often biking uh, in between sets, he had a bicycle for his personal use to ride around the different Stone Street sets. Um, the battle at the Black Gate at the conclusion of Return of the King was filmed in a location where the New Zealand Army actually does live fire exercises. Um, so several soldiers and sergeants actually acted as extras and were apparently fighting for real, which broke quite a lot of the props. <laughs> They originally filmed scenes of Sauron against Aragorn there. They were going to reintroduce Sauron for this final battle before changing their mind and deciding to focus on the story of Frodo. Um, Sauron was even going to appear in his fair version from the Silmarillion um, before transforming into his more monstrous form. Um... And the characters react to that at uh, some point as well. Um, but it was decided that the focus should be on Frodo and the Ring, so instead they gave Aragorn a cave troll to fight, and the reactions to the fair Sauron were used for Aragorn's reaction to the eye of Sauron and it glaring at him, uh, with a final pickup shoot shot added of Aragorn saying, for Frodo, before charging into battle. Uh, the entire trilogy was shot in a 438-day shoot over 14 months um, after three and a half years of pre-production. Uh, you know, this was a massive undertaking uh, by all involved to complete these films and to to put the best adaptation of this work out there. Um, the film had to have its own prop department to create everything. That was the Weta Workshop. Um, things couldn't be sourced. Uh, and oftentimes, anything that they needed to make also needed scale duplicates. So a lot of things had to be made three times. Um, so, for example, there'd be the the normal size thing that the Hobbits would be using. Uh, a smaller size, which would be used for any of the larger actors in the scene. Uh, and then sometimes some objects would be made, uh, you know, things that were in a human scale would then be given a larger size to be used by the Hobbit actors. Um, you'd get plenty of uh, craftsmen involved. Um, there was apparently Weta Workshop used a, a glass blower, carpenters, saddle makers, coopers, wheelwrights, uh, blacksmiths everything was involved in this production and in fact the um, the Weta workshop documentaries on the lord of the rings extended edition dvds are some of the most fascinating um you know they described there's about 3000 people in the crew at Weta workshop 300 of which were in the art department um so their job was to 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 make you know to come up with the ideas for all these items 
that were being created. Uh, 45,000 different items were made by Weta Workshop, including prosthetics, armor, weapons, miniatures. Uh, the four Hobbit leads alone used 18,000 prosthetic feet. Uh, I'm not sure if that includes their scale doubles as well, uh, or if that number then has to be doubled for scale and stunt doubles, or if it's just for the four characters. Um, you know, because each set of feet had to be removed at the end of a day's shooting and shredded because removing them from the actor's feet would actually destroy the prosthetic. Um, you know, they described they had ovens going 24-7 for a period of several years, um, just creating different latex uh, pieces, um, different prosthetic pieces to be used for all of the actors. Um Weta Workshop decided quite early on they wanted to work for many different departments to create a cohesive vision of the films so that all, you know, there was one studio responsible for producing every weapon, every set, every piece of clothing, every digital artifact um, that would need to be used for every army, um, which I think is amazing and i think it really does show uh the dedication they had to to making this film the best it could possibly be um they tend to also use a lot of large miniatures rather than matte paintings matte paintings for anyone who's not aware are a traditional thing in filmmaking circles uh the star wars trilogy for example is quite famous for its use of matte paintings and they are a flat painted surface that you can insert actors or parts of a set into, into a small corner um, to provide a, a vista or a background that looks fantastical and otherworldly. Um, Weta Workshop, instead of using matte paintings, tend to use digital productions um, and miniatures. Um, and when I say miniatures, I mean more bigatures, but I'll discuss that later on. Um, all the creatures were tend to be designs in a way that they sort of made sense. So, for example, the trolls, the cave trolls, were designed to have like a very hard back and a soft belly, as if they'd kind of curled up and looked like a rock. Uh, and they were given large shovel-like nails um, to dig with. Um, the armor smiths working on creating all the armor for the film. Uh, worked it out of real metal, um, plate steel usually. Um, they also found a way to make a very realistic and light chainmail that the actors would be able to use using plastic pipe. Um, over 12 kilometers of hose pipe was used to make 12.5 million rings, which would then be woven into chainmail suits over a period of three and a half years. Um, the two workmen doing it basically did that for three and a half years, just make chainmail suits, and apparently they wore away their fingerprints on their index and thumb. Um, eight, the you know Gimli's armor alone apparently contains eighty thousand pieces of the chainmail rings, um, which is. A crazy amount and and then you look at someone like Denethor who wears the largest chainmail piece in the film which is a head to toe 
um, chainmail gown, um, you know, shortly before his his climactic scene um, where he immolates himself. Um, you know, that's it's staggering to think of how much is involved in that particular piece of work. Um, there was an aim to try and get distinctive silhouettes for each of the races in their armour so that you could tell at a glance whether you were looking at men of Gondor, men of Rohan, the ancient Numenorians, the elves, the orcs, the Uruk-hai, etc. Which I think is, uh, again, another great idea. There's a lot of large battle sequences in this trilogy and you know when you're watching a frenetic action sequence or a large battle sequence you want to know who's who uh, at a glance and you want to make it easy for the audience to to tell without having to recognize certain things um there were a hundred sets of elven armor created um for the third age so that's for the um the scenes in the two towers um the elves were designed to have different color schemes in the second age and the third age um so in the third age they use what they called the autumn tones because it's coming towards the end of their time on middle earth uh lots of golds browns and reds um uh, the spring tones that they used for their second age in the prologue of the first film uh they use a lot of greens blues and uh, sort of bright yellows. Um, the elven armor was also structured in a way that made the actors pose upright in a very balletic fashion. Um, in contrast to some of the other armors that would be used, which uh, created a lot of sort of hunched looks. Um, the actors who played uh, orcs were generally told to be in a sort of hunched and skittering motion, uh, especially the goblins in Moria. Uh, there were 250 suits made of the various armors of Rohan uh, to represent both the standing soldiers in full armor with full horsehair crests, um, all the way down to sort of the king's bannermen who'd be wearing kind of rough leather armor. Um, Theoden's armor was especially ornate and designed to have like um, brass. It was made of brass with like leather overlays. Uh, to create the details of the finish. Um, the Uruk-hai, uh, who are obviously some of the key antagonists in the film, uh, were one of the first races to really be created and finalised by the crew uh, to sort of create a benchmark for the rest of Middle-earth. Um, they had to use full latex suits um, for the Uruk-hai, so for example, while filming the battle scene in Helm's Deep, um, which took several months, they had to have over 300 foam latex suits ready at any time, because um, they had 100 plus Uruk-hai stunt actors, and obviously those suits could get damaged and ripped, and you know they could only last about six days anyway before they'd have to be replaced with completely new prosthetics. Um, after six days of shooting. Um, the Uruk-hai also had different helmets to indicate specialisations in the army, which you can note if you look at them in the battle sequence. Um, 
there were also tons of swords made for the film. There's over a hundred different swords made and balanced as hero swords for close-ups. They were all made out of spring steel, uh, which allows them to bend like real swords should. Um, they also used aluminium and rubber swords for fighting and stunt work. Uh, Vigo Mortensen apparently liked to use the um, the hero sword as often as possible while filming um because he said because it was a real sword a real heavy steel sword you'd get tired while you were fighting with it due to its weight um which he said added to his performance he even asked um that aragorn be given a a, a whetstone prop um to allow his sword to be sharpened on the road um so obviously that was then added you know, crafted out of uh, a piece of silicon and added to Aragorn's costume on the request of the actor. Um, there were over 10,000 different arrows made for the film, um, some for each race. Um, so you'd have elven arrows, orc arrows, uruk arrows, uh, men arrows, etc. Some characters would also spend hours in makeup um most of the hobbit actors had to have several hours in the morning having their feet applied as well as their ears their wigs uh john reese davis who played the role of gimli had several layers of latex uh, including fake nose um hair pieces ears cheeks etc and apparently would react very very badly to the makeup um his its skin flared up every day that he was filming and so he couldn't be shot on multiple days in a row um so had to so yeah he'd have to film a day and then take a day off to recover and then film another day and so on uh for the majority of the shoot however uh, one little interesting fact about his makeup is it did include uh, a latex fingertip um you know he'd, he'd lost uh, a fingertip on his middle finger on his uh, left hand i believe it was um as a as a youngster um and so he'd had a latex fingertip um to restore him so that gimli had full use of his hands um uh, which he once used to play a prank, uh, quite a devious little prank on uh, Peter Jackson. <laughs> the Hobbits would also sometimes have go through the whole rigmarole of having their feet made up, but then their feet not being shot. Um, Sean Austin, uh, Sean Astin, sorry, um, actually kept a count of the days that this happened, and he said it happened uh, fifty days. Um, across the the shoot where he'd be required to go through the makeup but then not have his feet be in the shot um, and he seems to have taken a particular ire at it uh, perhaps most impressively which I didn't realise until watching the uh, the documentary from Weta Workshop was that Treebeard um, was actually a constructed animatronic um, a large animatronic obviously um and it was done to allow the actors dominic monaghan and billy boyd playing merry and pippin 
to interact with him. Um, his face was then later animated in post-production and enhanced for his speaking parts, uh, being able to move and emote properly. But yeah, the torso of um, Treebeard, a lot of the scenes you see of the hobbits sitting on him while he is walking or him holding them in his hands, um, were done with a, a realistic live Treebeard that they created you know that that could actually walk around on you know i say walk around it had no real legs it was some prop guys moving giant poles to make the thing sway but yeah it was a that, that i i never thought that treebeard was actually animatronic so reading that was very very interesting and yeah it's one of those things i don't think you believe unless you saw it in action and on the documentary, you do. You get to see it. Um, also, one quite nifty filmmaking fact, which I couldn't find a, a better place to put it in this uh, review, so I'm going to add it here. Um, the scenes with Galadriel um, in Lothlorien were shot in a different frame rate um, to create um, a sort of slowed dreamlike quality to her movements on screen um so scenes of her walking around towards her mirror are shot at 33 frames per second which is like time and a half um and then her dark queen speech was shot at 48 frames per second rather than the standard 24 so that when the film was played back at the appropriate 24 frames per second speed um, Galadriel seems slower and more ethereal which I thought was a great addition uh, that you get when adapting a film uh, when adapting a novel into a film and it does it does work to make Galadriel seem quite otherworldly um, there was an entire costume department beyond Weta Workshop, Weta Workshop was responsible for creating the armour but there was also a um, a load of seamstresses involved in making costumes 40 different seamstress seamstresses uh who made over 19,000 costumes um each of the lead actors would have 10 of their costumes then 10 again for their body doubles then for their scale doubles then for their stunt doubles um uh, so for example for a frodo any of Frodo's outfits would require 40 copies, some of which in different scales. Um, costumes were usually designed to look worn or aged. Uh, you know, not, everything was to look lived in, not brand new. Um, there's lots and lots of hand stitching and embroidery. And seeing the footage in the documentary you realize some of this you can't really make out in on screen properly um and it's incredibly impressive and it was all done by hand as well um saruman for example his outfit is not bright white it's actually made to look um sort of faded as well but it's also covered in all these lavish and intricate details a lot of which then echo in Gandalf the White's outfit as well. Um, Aragorn's outfit is designed to look like it's been repaired by hand, like there are 
cuts that are then stitched with like hand stitching um you know to look like he's been repairing his own clothes as he's been wandering around as a ranger um gandalf the gray's outfit even looks like it's going threadbare in some places um you know to echo you know gandalf sort of traveling on the road um every actor in the film also wore a wig i should point out there's there's one extra who is one of peter jackson's children who apparently was not wearing a wig every other actor is wearing a wig throughout the film and almost every beard is false as well um some of the larger false beards um meant that um prosthetic noses also needed to be used to accentuate the profile of characters um as you could lose their nose um in the layers of fake beard uh ian mckellen for example in the documentary states that he has quite a prominent nose and yet still had to wear uh, a latex prosthetic uh to increase the size of his nose um there was also a soft workshop uh, which was responsible for making uh textile banners and tapestries um for the armies so the 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 banners that they carry into battle the giant textile tapestries that are on the walls of the golden hall in Edoras. um and there are also many many details that you just don't see on screen um for example one of eowyn's gowns has some incredible detailing but the scene where it's featured um she shot from the neck up so you don't really see the gown and then the only other scene where she's wearing the gown she's under a, a large blanket that aragorn covers her with so yeah it's the work that went into this film is incredible now when it came to filming the lord of the rings um one of the biggest issues is the contrast of characters being different heights um and different sizes um so the hobbits for example are said to be about three foot if that compared to a man uh sort of between three and four foot tall compared to a full-grown man now it's not enough for them to be played by um i'm not sure the correct the pc term is at the minute is it is little people actors um you know what used to be referred to as dwarves and midgets um but i know those aren't technically accepted by any of those uh communities um but you know uh little people actors um who were obviously used to, to great success to play a lot of uh aliens on things like star trek um for example all of the wicket or all of wickets wickets the character all of the ewoks uh or obviously kenny baker who played r2d2 um and you know their use in films such as willow and time bandits but I do think I agree with the decision not to use too many actors like that um, for 
Lord of the Rings. I mean, I'm not trying to dis- diminish um, many little people actors. There are some incredible ones out there. Um, but I do think the, the forced scale that they did in this is much more impressive um, in, in terms of a feat of filmmaking. What they did was they employed a lot of um, tried and true filming techniques, really. Forced perspective being one of the main ones, where, for example, a a, la- a character who should appear larger is to the, towards the foreground of the the screen and, and so on. Um, and they also used scale doubles, where, the, you know, they did use... Uh, some little people actors and some quite large people as well um, as doubles for different characters while interacting with other others. Um, and it does create the impression that these hobbits and Gimli as well, the dwarf, are a lot smaller than... You know, the characters they're alongside. You know. And it's very, very, very well done. They also, um, despite the fact that a lot of these are tried and tested methods, they did try and innovate them as well. Um, For example, the table in Bag End, when Bilbo is pouring Gandalf tea, um, they created a dolly rig so that the camera could move with the force perspective for the first time in uh, film history. Um, you know, the camera would move and the table would move along with it um, due to the rig that it was on. They also created um, large, big rig costumes for certain characters, which would be these large costumes with animatronic hands as well in a lot of cases um, to to walk past the hobbits. For example, there's one, there's a, a, a big rig that walks past the hobbits when they're checking into the prancing pony in Bree. And the hands actually move and flex as though real, as though a man is trying to gesture, saying, oh, sorry, can I just get through there? Um, But it's an animatronic hand designed to look large, but it moves and gesticulates exactly like a real hand. It's very, very impressive. Um... Some cases, the scale doubles might wear face masks of the actors that they're portraying uh, for wide shots. Uh, for example, the actor who was the scale double for um, for Gimli. They they did mention his full name uh, in the documentaries, but I have forgotten. I believe his first name was definitely Brett. Um, he was just a. a he was just a shorter actor who they used quite a lot for a lot of the wide shots of Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli together. Um, you know, he had he wore a lot of the same facial prosthetics that John Rhys Davis wore as Gimli, um, which gave him a look not dissimilar to Gimli. But for example, a lot of the scale doubles for the Hobbits, um, one of them, uh, um, an Indian man named Kieran Shah. Um, he would wear. He was obviously a much older man and of, of a, a a racial orientation that meant he didn't look like Billy Boyd or Elijah Wood or any of the other hobbits. So when he would be filming, he'd often wear a mask 
um, like a latex mask uh, to resemble those actors. So, for example, um, when they're boating, um, they're on the boats uh, traveling down the river and doing. Um, he's in the boat as Pippin, wearing a face mask of Billy Boyd. <laughs> um, and it's just incredibly impressive. Everything in the film looks very natural. There's a, there's a few scenes where you can notice the blue screen compositing, where actors have obviously been filmed on different sets, or, um, you know, an actor has been put in using blue screen. And there are a couple of those scenes, but it's more impressive the ones that you don't notice, I think. For example, um, there's a scene of Frodo walking through a door in front of Gandalf, where he's talking about getting rid of the ring, um, saying no one knows it's here. Elijah Wood was filmed on a blue screen and then composited into the shot of Bag End with Ian McKellen. Um, or when Gandalf first arrives at Bag End and hands his hat and uh, staff to Bilbo, um, the two actors were filmed on... Well, I think Bilbo was filmed on the Bag End set with uh, the large props, and Ian McKellen was filmed against a blue screen, and then with, you know, the, the props relevant to his scale. And... You know, it's a it's a pretty seamless compositing. Um, the issues where the compositing is more noticeable, I think the most noticeable example in the trilogy is when um, Frodo and Sam are unmasked in the ranger camp in the Two Towers and the camera pans out as all the rangers are manoeuvring around them. That was that was one of the more noticeable ones. For the rest of the time, it is quite seamless and quite natural. And I think it looks very impressive. Um, a lot of the actors would also, and a lot of the scale doubles would also be involved in the stunt work. Um, there were also stunt teams trained in multiple techniques and styles to represent all of the the different cultures and races. Um, the scale doubles and a lot of the stunt actors would be considered by the principal actors almost as important um, in anything they were doing. Um, you know, the the documentary is full of stories and discussions of these different you know, of the actors um, telling stories from behind the scenes. And it's very clear that the, the stunt team and the scale team were incorporated into all of that as well. Um, a lot of this bonding behind the scenes, which I think is lovely. Um, the film hired Swordmaster Bob Anderson. Bob Anderson has been involved in multiple films. He was... Darth Vader's sword double in the original Star Wars. He was the responsible for the sword choreography in The Princess Bride. And he's perhaps most famous as the stunt double of Errol Flynn. Um, he was responsible for a lot of the sword training techniques and working with a lot of the principal actors, um, including the heavy training of Viggo Mortensen as Aragorn. 
um, who he described as one of the most gifted swordsmen he'd ever worked with. Um, Vigo Mortensen was actually hired quite late into production. Um, originally, Stuart Townsend was cast as Aragorn um, before they decided that he was probably too young for the role. So when Vigo was flown into New Zealand, um, he literally had a week to train um, before he shot his first scenes, which was the Battle at Weathertop, where he has to fight off five of the Nazgul. Um, but apparently he took to it very, very, very well. Um, and you can see in the final film, the, the Battle at Weathertop, Aragorn is impressive. Um there were over four months of stunt work done for the Battle of Helm's Deep in the Two Towers. Um, the the Uruks actors playing the stunt team, you know, the stunt team playing the Uruks, um, you know, they'd actually sort of divided at some points against the stunt team doing the elves. Um, there was a, almost a sort of rivalry between them to create the better scenes. At one point, apparently, the the uh, the actors playing the Uruks did a hacker at the newer actors of El the you know the newer stunt team who were playing the elves. Um, Vigo was often there as well, doing a lot of his own stunts, and all of the stunt actors apparently wanted to fight him. Um, you know because he he gave the best fights and presented the best stunts. Um, and yeah, the the stories of all of them just bonding um on the documentaries are amazing i'm i'm focusing in my discussion here on the uh, the filmmaking aspects but there are so many discussions of um you know injuries and horseplay and uh, drinking and fishing and um running jokes between the the cast and crew um you know and if you have the DVDs for Lord of the Rings, the extended cut editions. Um, I think they're, they're also available on the Blu-ray. And you haven't watched these appendices? I highly recommend it. They can be a bit dry in places. Uh, maybe don't marathon them like I did for this uh, podcast. But I, I definitely recommend watching them because some of the stories are just so lovely and endearing. And, you know, for example you know why would you not want to learn why the hobbit actors had to record the 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 quite emotionally harrowing grey havens finale of return of the king three times cuz that's a thing that happened <laughs> and they explain why um you know in that novel do you not want to know the story of what actually happened at um Sam and Rosie's wedding and which of the other actors were actually there. You know, these are things that I'm not going to spoil for you. And I highly recommend watching those documentaries if you want to find out. There's so many interesting bits in there. Um, one fun little story which I found quite interesting was that the scenes on the Sirith Ungol stairs where Frodo sends Sam away were shot a year apart. Um... You know, uh, what I mean by that is the shots of coverage on Frodo were shot one day and the shots of Sam were shot another day, which is pretty standard uh, in filmmaking. You know, you get the coverage in different shots on different days. Um, but in this instance, yes, they were f filmed a year apart. 
it was because the um, they went down to film external shots as Queenstown had flooded. And so they got a local squash court where they could do some indoor filming and set the only set that would fit on the squash court was the stairs of Kirathungol. Um So they they set the, the set up, they filmed Frodo's half, and then the next day when they came to shoot, the weather was brilliant. Um, and in that run-up to Christmas, the weather carried on being brilliant, so they carried on shooting outside while they could. Um, you know, using the good weather to do all the ex- external flooding. Uh, you know, external flooding to do all the external filming, all the location filming, um, and then eventually having to come back. And they left the the stairs of Curathungal set set up on a squash court in a hotel, um, for a whole year, waiting for you know the the actors and filmmakers to return to film the other half of this scene. The first scene, the first half, also being shot, um, even before Andy Serkis was cast as Gollum. Uh, you know, being filmed while they were filming the Fellowship of the Ring, because uh, Gollum, Andy Serkis was Gollum was actually cast quite late, which I'll go into in a bit. Now, I said before, one of the big parts of filming um, Lord of the Rings was the bigatures, as they came to be coined by a wet workshop. The bigatures were essentially large miniatures um, created for things like Isengard. Casa Doom, Rivendell, Lothlorien, Helm's Deep, um, Minas Tirith, etc. That could then be used in camera for long and detailed shots. And they were called bigatures because while they were built to a certain scale, they were still large. They were enormous. <laughs> um... And, you know, model shots and digital doubles could be used alongside them to create the, you know, the detailed um, thing. So, for example, uh, Helm's Deep, for example, the shots um, of the Deeping Wall and um, Theoden and Aragorn walking the battlements as all the, the men are guarding them... Um, you know, part of that was shot on a real set, which was then imposed on the shots taken of the miniature, um, with digital creations being used at the bottom for soldiers milling around and getting ready. Um, and it's it's very very impressive. Um, you know, they they also created a digital camera which they could use in a three D set. So, for example, on the Motion Capture Studio, um, there's shots in the documentaries of Peter Jackson wired up with a, a VR camera, a digital camera, which he was then able to pose in the 3D version of the set of Balin's tomb uh, for the cave troll battle. So he could decide where the camera was going for the digital aspects of the battle. Um there were many, many other digital programs. I'm going to talk on one of them in a minute, which is called Massive. Um, but they also used, for example, a small program known, known as Grove, um, which was used to dress the Ents um, with variations of leaves and branches. Um, but got to go back to the, the bigatures, um, there were, they were also worked in with the logistic 
as to how they could exist and how that would inform the design. So, for example, something like the Argonaths, the giant statues that are before the uh, falls of Raoros of the ancient kings of men standing with their hands out. Um, you know, their lower parts are carved from the mountainside and then, you know, directly. And then their higher upper bodies are built out of bricks and the miniature includes a quarry next to the Argonaths where these bricks would have been bought, would have been hewn from the stone and then carried over and constructed into the Argonaths. Um, you know, something like Minas Morgul, which was a, um, a former human city um, and how it's been captured and taken by the orcs um and been sort of perverted um you know a tower like um i or the tower of orthanc um being created with its top to match sauron's staff and to be <laughs> looking like it's been made out of sort of obsidian, like chunks of obsidian, like volcanic glass, almost. Um, yeah, some some very interesting things, and it, it helps with realising these fantastical locations on film, because they're real. Uh, you know, you, you're looking at them, these aren't CGI creations, they are real. The entire Tower of Baradur, for example, was constructed in uh, a 166th scale. Um, but they they built the entire tower. It was uh, inside a, a, a large room, but it's the entire Tower of Baradur. Um, Helm's Deep, they constructed in multiple different scales for different shots. Um, Fangorn Forest, they even built a miniature for... Um, as 60 square foot plates, you know, a series of plates that encompass 60 square feet that could be um, shuffled and moved around to create different long shots for the forest, um, which they could then animate Treebeard in. Um, some things were then done practically with the miniatures as well. So, for example, there's a tower in Osgiliath, which is hit by a large rock catapulted from the um, the orc side, and they did that practically, um, as well as the um, the breaking of the the dam in Isengard, or the um, the pouring out of the skulls in the Dimholt Road, um, and it's phenomenally impressive watching these things and seeing them all done for real. Um, you know, the Blackgate miniature was a miniature that actually opened. You know, the 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 gates, the, the black gate itself opens up um on the miniature. Um there were different lighting schemes used for Minus Mongol. Um so for example, it even included glowing paint um so that it could be lit with a UV light to give it what was called the corpse light glow that it's described to have in the book. Um, you know, the Paths of the Dead, the Dimalt Road, um, features 60,000 miniature skulls that are unleashed 
um, as it as it as it breaks. Um, the the miniature for Minas Tirith features over one thousand different houses, you know, all arranged and placed within the city. Um, you know, the miniatures team apparently shot for over a thousand days of the production. Um, they had parties as they were as they were filming. Um, you know, on the two hundred fiftieth day, the the five hundredth day, the six hundred sixty sixth day, they had a, a devil themed party. Um, some footage of which makes its way into the documentary and looks like it was a hell of a lot of fun. Um, you know, the, and when I say miniatures. You know, they they were also responsible for building, for example, a life size dead mama kill, complete with six hundred arrows in it, um, for background shots in the aftermath of Pelennor Fields, and Weta Workshop had their party, the staff pa- party, after shooting it, and they even took their cast photo on it. <laughs> you know, it's ah. Oh. I personally found while I was watching the documentaries as as interesting as some of the aspects of the the filmmaking were and Weta's efforts were incredible. The miniature documentaries were some of my favourite. Um, as you may have seen, um, you know, as you may have you may have seen if you've ever checked out my Instagram um, through the the links that I have or. Um, as you may have gathered from my my Warhammer episode, I'm I'm a fan of miniature modelling, and I'm I was looking at these miniatures and thinking I I know how to build stuff like that. I've seen stuff like that at Warhammer World in Nottingham. Um, uh, you know the Warhammer World, the the guys behind Warhammer Games Workshop, they even did a Lord of the Rings miniature game, and they have. A whole range of Lord of the Rings models they have done since the films were released. Um, you know the the designers of the Lord of the Rings miniature game even cameo in the Battle of Pelennor Fields in full costume as as warriors of Rohan. Um, now they those they have miniatures for their battle game. And they've actually created miniature dioramas and stuff for the Lord of the Rings game. Um, you know, you go into Warhammer World in Nottingham in the United Kingdom, and there is a Battle of Pelennor Fields display downstairs with um, the Riders of Rohan, the Orcs, the Mummerkill, everything. It's, yeah. So I found the miniature documentaries especially fascinating. Um,. Yeah, so yeah, I I heartily recommend watching those if you have any interest in um, miniatures and just being able to realise them and seeing them in shot, I think, totally adds to the film um, because you can see these miniatures there. I mean, you know, these films came out in the early 2000s. CGI was not as advanced as it is now. But even then, we're going to talk about the CGI now. Um, one of the developers at Weta Digital created a program called Massive. Now, Massive is used as a program for the battle sequences within these films. 
essentially what Massive does is it creates advanced AI behavior for all of the combatants in the army battles, allowing each of the characters who is described as an agent to have realistic reactions with both opponents and obstacles. Um, so they will find the nearest opponent, they will interact with their allies, they will maneuver over obstacles or around obstacles as and when necessary. Um, all of the agents have the ability to see and hear, and the while running the program, you can even zoom in and view through the eyes of all the different agents to see what the agents themselves are processing. Um, you know, the programming would allow them to attack, react, block, seek new targets. Um, you could set the intelligence level of the different agents so for ex to reflect um, their martial skill. Um, so, you know, they could block effectively or not, as the case may be. Agents could also have randomly generated or adjusted variables, which would allow each agent to be physically different in height, build, gait, motion... Um, creating a whole load of amazing, amazing pieces of footage. Um, and again, it's only through watching the documentary, like with Treebeard, that you realise just how much of this film is CGI. Um, a lot of scenes feature agents created through Massive in close-up, um, walking past the camera or in motion past the camera. And you realise just how impressive that software is. Um, you know, the, the shots of the orcs bearing down on Helm's Deep. You know, there were a, there was a large team of orc stunt actors, but the actions of them marching and marching into the valley towards Helm's Deep those shots are pretty much all done with Massive. There are a few done with the, the actual stunt team, but a lot of the wide shots featuring large amounts of the army, done with Massive. The charge of the Rahirim, Return of the King, large parts of it, done with Massive. It's a very, very impressive piece of kit. I, I would love to know what else it's been used for. Um, I'd imagine most things Weta Digital have worked on probably uses a lot of it so uh king kong i know weta digital also have been involved in um a lot of the marvel features so it wouldn't surprise me to learn that massive has been used for some of the battle sequences for example in uh end game or infinity war both of which uh weta digital were involved with but yes it's definitely impressive i'd love to know if it had been used for any video games as well um I'd imagine a lot of strategy games, if they used programming from Massive, would be incredible. Um, I know it's not it's not a genre I particularly play myself, but I'd imagine watching watching those games would be impressive if they were used with Massive. Um, so yeah, the 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 development of Massive and the creation of these agents within allowed them to use multiple close shots of CGI creations um, within camera. Um, some shots were even attempted in Massive before they attempted them on set with the stunt team. 
um, to see if they could do it in massive first. Um, and it's very impressive. Um, Two Towers, for example, had 73 minutes of its total runtime involving visual effects. And a lot, some of that uses massive. Quite a lot of it uses massive, to be fair. Um, <laughs> between the films, um, a lot of the post-production visual effects work was done um, after the film had released. So, for example, the Two Towers visual effects work was done within the year between Fellowship of the Rings release and Two Towers' release, and then the same for Return of the King. Um, now, Weta Digital doubled its team for the second film, and I think increased the team again for Return of the King. Um they did do some things practically. Not everything was massive. For example, the Charge of the Rohirrim also features shots of over 250 horses and riders um, charging into battle. Um, several horses were also used realistically in um, across across the film. And several of them that were specially trained for the film were bought after filming. Um, so Viggo Mortensen bought his own horse, Brago. Um, I've forgotten the horse's, the actual horse's name, but he played the character of Brago. Um, and he even bought uh, Arwen's horse for Arwen's riding double, who wanted to buy him but couldn't afford to because he was a stallion. So Vigo bought it and gave it to her as a gift, which I find lovely. There's plenty of stories of Vigo Mortensen being awesome throughout these films. You get the feeling he was a bit of the heart and soul of the whole production. Uh, helped, I think, by how many scenes Aragorn is pivotal in and how many storylines he's pivotal in and how many people he interacts with. Um, there were more and more visual effects needed by Weta Digital as the series continued, though. Um, Fellowship of the Ring features 540 visual effects shots. The Two Towers features 799, and then Return of the King featured 1,488 different visual effect shots. Um, Return of the King was Massive's probably their greatest achievement. Um, the entire Battle of Pelennor Fields was shot within Massive. Um, you know, well, I mean, obviously there were real play elements used but a lot of the larger scenes of the battle were done within Massive. There were 350,000 different agents used for the Pelennor Fields effects. Um, 200,000 orcs, the men of Minas Tirith, the army of the dead, etc. Um, as well as the, the, the men of Harad and the Mamakil. Um, Alan Lee helped to create the virtual environment based on his own knowledge of Middle Earth. Um, he was quite heavily involved with West Digital creating the environment of the Pelennor Fields um, based on things that he'd done in his paintings before as well as in different concept arts. They built a virtual landscape um, made up of location shots um, to create a sort of virtual miniature that a camera could be manipulated within. Um, in the same way that they would use the bigotures to manipulate a real camera. Um, Massive was used to program all the agents. 
So there's 200,000 orcs, 6,000 Rahirim, which included motion capture of horses doing 450 different motions um, so that all the horses act in the same way that the the standard humanoid agents do. Um, and that's in comparison to the 10,000 Uruk-hai that we used at Helm's Deep. So that just shows you just how huge the scale of the Pelennor Fields battle is. Um, Peter Jackson even suggested that visual effects supervisor Jim Rigel um, shoot the real horses for the Battle of, uh, of Pelennor Fields um, so that he could more closely match the pre-visualization and the, um, the real effect shots that they knew that they needed. Um, the Collapse of Baradur as well also used a digital model. Um, so someone made a digital model based on the miniature that had been created um and created it over his christmas break one year um uh, as almost kind of a labor of love to make sure that baradur collapsed effectively the visual effects crew um had their monthlies screened uh every month uh month monthlies comes from the the term of like all the shots that you had been completed in that month were screened for the crew every month um so they could see the work that they'd been working on and see what it would actually look like on screen, um, which I think is a great idea to let them see what they've done um, as they're going along. Um, the final month of production apparently featured 40 minutes of work. That's the final month of production on Return of the King. It's very, very impressive, the visual effects stuff uh, in this film. Um, you know, it... Lord of the Rings still looks better than a lot of films that have come out since. And I think a large portion of that is the um, the effort that went into it. And a large part of it is a lot of the real-world references that they had. Um, you know, a lot of things like orc armor was created realistically. And then that realistic prop could be used on the digital creation um and it just makes everything more believable i think same with the miniatures the bigatures etc um there's a lot more elements to the production there was multiple filming units throughout most of the the production um most films usually run with a secondary unit that is responsible for things that the the first unit can't do um but there was not just a secondary unit on all of the rings quite often there was a uh, five or seven um filming units uh with well each of which had multiple cameras um so that things could be done you know to sort of streamline the process um Different shooting units were able to link via satellite so that Jackson could observe, even if he was not technically with that shooting unit, um, if he was in a different area of New Zealand. Altogether, the film shot 5 million feet of film, 70% um, of which got printed. Um, so printing film is where you, you are actually seriously considering it and taking it to the editing suite, etc. Um Editing equipment, 
even ended up being taken to location at times so that editing could be done while the film was uh, shooting. Each film had its own editor. That was a decision Peter Jackson made quite early on. Uh, John Gilbert uh, does the editing for Fellowship, Mike Horton for The Two Towers, and longtime Peter Jackson collaborator James Selkirk, who worked with him throughout most of his independent film career, um, does The Return of the King. Um, there were multiple takes done for this film, um, and we're talking double figures uh, for takes, as Jackson directed each line of the film that he was shooting. Um, quite often leading to a variety of different takes as, he, as he'd ask the actors to say the line differently or put the emphasis on a different word, etc. And a lot of actors were, especially the more experienced actors, um, were unused to this. Um, Christopher Lee commented that, you know, usually does a take just a film in sort of three or four takes and he's like i think we've got this and ian mckellen said oh no 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 i didn't shoot the other day and got to 24 takes um you know so it's a very particular style of filmmaking but i think it it requires a lot of work but i, I do think it's definitely helps because again this film is a a, a masterpiece um There'd be sometimes the dailies of what was being filmed uh, could be three to four hours long. Um, so, you know, the the crew would be watching the dailies back uh, and there could be hours of dailies from multiple different takes, multiple different camera angles, multiple different filming units. Uh, one particular day in the production, I don't think they ever specified what day it was, but they had 50,000 feet of film which equates to eight hours. Um, as a result of this, obviously Jackson couldn't personally oversee every daily. Um, usually the director is quite heavily involved with the dailies to make sure he's got what he needed. Jackson couldn't necessarily see every single daily for this film and film the film because of how much effort it took, how much time that would have taken. Um, so, for example, something like Boromir's death um, his death scene was cut by the editor and then presented to Peter Jackson. And Peter Jackson said, yeah, that's fine. That's perfect. Put it in the film. Um, they tried to focus the cut for the first movie, especially on the story of Frodo and the Ring um, and take out a lot of superfluous scenes. Um, New Line, uh, Robert Shea had... Uh, cut privileges but apparently did not interfere in the cut so the the final theatrical cut is entirely Jackson's cut um, so the extended cut isn't necessarily a director's cut in the same way that a lot of other director's cuts were where the directors put back things that they wanted to include in the movie but for whatever reason were forced to remove um, usually by studio interference a good example being um the Zack Snyder cut of Justice League, which is, um, you know, him showing his version of the movie, or um, James Cameron's director's cut of Aliens, um, which includes scenes that he wanted to include um, for storyboard and script, such as the the scenes with the sentry guns or um, the acknowledgement of Alan Ripley's daughter, 
Um, but those scenes are taken out of the theatrical cut because they do extend it quite significantly and slow it down in certain points of the film. Um, the extended cut isn't that in the same way. It's not a director's cut in the same way as those. Um, but what it does it, is it adds more of the scenes from the book um, for the extra subplots and characters um, that you know, detract from the focus of Frodo and the ring. Uh, Aragorn especially gets a lot of extended scenes in um, the extended cuts, especially in Fellowship. Um, and a lot of the existing, the scenes for the extended cuts were then touched up as needed um, before, you know, after the films, the theatrical cut had been delivered. Um you know, for the DVDs, the the extended cut videos and DVDs when they were releasing, released in the November um, before the next film. So, um, Fellowship released December two thousand and one. It's um, it's extended cut didn't release until November two thousand and two. Um, you know, about a month before the release of Two Towers, um, and then. Same for Two Towers and Return of the King. It was November after their release that those extended cuts released uh, after existing DVD and video prints had already released. So the extended cut would be quite often worked on um, alongside the score for the next film while Peter Jackson was in London with Howard Shaw. Um, Two Towers was edited by Jackson editing each story arc at a time and then working on intercutting them together um, to make the narrative flow better. Uh, actors would tend to be brought in for pickups after the rough cut was previewed amongst the filmmakers as they could decide what was necessary to develop the plot or how to make scenes better. This is also where they might decide that maybe an extra visual effect shot needed to be done or... Um, you know, sometimes an extra miniature shot. They might take the miniatures out of storage and do an extra shot for them. And Two Towers, uh, when they went into it, they thought might be the most difficult to edit, but Return of the King was apparently much, a much busier edit. Um, for Two Towers, they had to lock roughly five and a half minutes of the cut every day of post-production to reach the delivery day. Uh, which included score, visual effects, sound mixing, and the edit, all being done at the same time and mostly in the final minutes. Um, so, you know, a lot of late nights where Jackson would be working with one aspect of production and then do a tele teleconference for several hours um, to do more of the editing and post-production work. The first round of pickups and reshoots was done for all of the films together, as I said, on Stone Street, uh, with seven units shooting pretty much 24-7, and actors flitting between sets and scenes from across the trilogy. Uh, Viggo Mortensen says on one day of pickup shoots, he underwent eight costume changes um, as he moved from different sets. Um, the final pickups were then done after that in between film releases um, with less of a rush than during the, the principal photography or principal reshoots. Um, 
a lot of actors got gifted with props or costumes on their final days. Um, Viggo Mortensen was given a hacker by the stunt team and shared a headbutt with each of them, which would become a bit of a ritual um, between them uh, during his interactions with the stunt team. Um, Jackson himself felt that he was getting down to the wire on editing Return of the King and so made time to edit the ending over a three-week period um, in the middle of uh, post-production so that the ending of the film wouldn't be rushed. Um, so he locked that sort of final reel of the film relatively early on. Um, several scenes ended up begrudgingly being cut just because they weren't working in the final cut, such as the scene with Saruman that I mentioned earlier, uh, which was already a holdover because it didn't feel right in Two Towers. The film also uses digital colour grading um, to generate a sort of fantasy quality um, throughout the entire film, actually. Um, but whereas nowadays we tend to think of more sort of digital colour grading as like grayscale filters or um, sort of the washed out look that you get in a lot of movies nowadays as that use digital film, um, it was a criticism of a lot of the early Marvel films is that the the digital film made everything look a bit washed out whereas lord of the rings is very vibrant um a lot of the film has different scaling for areas and shots um the elves especially benefit from the digital grading you know they're allowed to be they can be made much brighter uh, a lot of their colors more vibrant about uh 70 percent of the film uses the digital color grading uh of some some manner of uh changing it also uh, allows shots from different cameras to match um so shots of miniatures shots of locations shots of sets shots of everything could all be blended together using the digital grading um and yeah there's a lot of changes that they made for example uh hobbiton uses uh, a lot of color grading shifted towards the magenta end of the spectrum to make everything feel warmer and relaxed, um, which I think is nice. The final part of crafting the film was the score. Um, the score was done by Howard Shaw. Um, Howard Shaw has been a composer in the music industry for, uh, in the film industry, sorry, for a long time. Um, he's been involved in several amazing films, but I do think his work on lord of the rings is possibly his best um he was involved as a composer um for several years as opposed to the the normal like six to eight weeks that composers usually work i think he was involved for like four years all told um he visited the set quite early on was involved uh, afterwards, right the way through until um, conclusion of editing on Return of the King. Um, apparently, he had nearly 8,000 takes of different music recordings across the trilogy. Um, he used a lot of choirs and other voices. There was a Polynesian male voice choir that were used to sing Dwarvish in one of the songs. Um Enya, the Celtic singer, composed um, Nerian, which was the theme song for Aragorn and Arwen. Um, 
he used a, a large mix of influences in creating the music. Um, so, for example, Lothlorien uses Indian and African instruments. So that nothing can really be nailed down to a particular culture, but does feel um, to have a cultural history all of its own. The score for all three films uses a lot of um, distinct themes and uh, leitmotifs um, to permeate the score. For example, The Fellowship um, has uh, a very strong theme and leitmotif that runs through a lot of their scenes and also scenes in the Shire. Um, the Ring has several leitmotifs, both for its more... It's it's power and it's uh, more seductive elements. Um, there's leitmotifs for Rohan, for Gondor, um, for the Ringwraiths, all of which permeate the entire trilogy. Um, sometimes with accompanying poems um, written by uh, Philippa Boyens or Fran Walsh, um, quite often taken from... Um, the novels and the novel or um and restructured into one of the languages that Tolkien created. Uh several themes approach different music um styles to create sort of uh unsettling feelings. For example, Isengard has a five four structure um to represent its industry, which is a more unnatural sound. They tend to Howard Shaw viewed approaching the score to these films like creating an opera with certain parts echoing across the trilogy. So, for example, the Gondor theme um, gets previewed in the Council of Elrond when uh, Boromir is talking about his father, uh, which I believe is in the extended cut, before then appearing in Return of the King um, quite prominently uh, during all the scenes set in Minas Tirith. The theme of the Ringwraiths includes a poem um, by Philippa Boyens that was translated into Adonaic, which is the uh, ancient language of men. Um, Peter Jackson wanted the theme for Rohan to be hummable, um, so Howard Shaw complied, and Fran Walsh actually commented to Peter Jackson the day that he did indeed start humming it. Um, many of the actors sing in the film, um, um, Viggo Mortensen, um, Miranda Otto, and Billy Boyd all sing as part of their performances in the film. Um, for Miranda Otto, she's singing in um, the language of Rohan, and you know she's singing sort of a prayer over Theodred's uh, funeral, um, which only appears in the extended cut, but I think I find is a nice touch. Um, for Aragorn, he's singing the, the sort of almost like a pledge of the uh, the ancient kings of Numenor when they arrived, um, in the land of Gondor. So essentially, it's like a, a promise that his ancestor would have made. Um, Billy Boyd's song is sung in Denethor's court. It's the only one of the three that's sung in English. Um, Liv Tyler is also sings a song that was meant to be used over one of Arwen's scenes, but never was, and so remained unused for a long time um, before finally appearing in the extended cut 
um, sung over the Houses of Healing scene in Return of the King. Um, the concluding song to the whole trilogy is Into the West, Excuse me. a song sung by Annie Lennox, who Howard Shaw had wanted to work with for years. Uh, the lyrics for it were inspired by Cameron Duncan, who is a, a young filmmaker from New Zealand and a friend of Jackson and Walsh, who died of a terminal illness during the filming of Return of the King. And musical refrains from Into the West do actually appear over a lot of scenes in Return of the King um, whenever characters are addressing death or discussing death. Um, so, for example, it plays uh, the scenes in the Grey Havens. It plays when Pippin and Gandalf talk about what waits beyond death. Uh, as well as several other scenes. Uh, Ringwraiths were given their quite unusual scream, um, which was the scream of writer Fran Walsh. Uh, Peter Jackson pointed out that she could scream like that, so she did. Due to an interesting quirk of fate, 98% of the film had to have its dialogue re-recorded by ADR. The warehouses where they were filming in Wellington were not far from the airport, meaning that um, for a lot of the the daily footage, there was um, planes going over overhead. Um, and so a lot, a lot of the audio then had to be recreated later on. This also meant quite heavy sessions of um, Foley as well, as a lot of the sound would need to be redone. Um, so every step needed to be redone. Even simple things like an arrow uh, firing required about six different sound effects that had to be layered together through Foley. There's also some interesting uh, sound facts. Um, the uh, a cricket crowd at Wellington was used for the Uruks at Helm's Deep. Um their mama kill were deliberately made not to sound like elephants um, because elephants are quite gentle animals that people care for. Um, so they were given noises such as lion roars and horses in heat uh, to make them sound scary and threatening so that we didn't object to these, these giant elephantine monsters being killed on screen. Um, they also had quite booming footsteps. Um, so to stop the... Uh, audio overwhelm the sound mixers only put sound on their front footsteps while the the mama kill are marching um otherwise it would have been cacophonic um the skulls and the dim halt were recorded using rented walnuts um because as they say in the documentary apparently you can rent walnuts in wellington for the sounds of the trebuchet and catapults uh, in Return of the King, the sound mixers actually dropped a two-ton concrete block off of a 60-foot crane repeatedly, um, first onto the ground and then onto different things to create different sound effects. Um, the sound design in the Smeagol flashback was actually used instead of the score to highlight the evil of the ring. Um, they used different echo effects and heartbeats and other things like that. Um, the new studio was actually being built around the sound mixing team in Wellington as they mixed Return of the King. Um, 
and again everything was down to the wire so music visual effects sound editing and final pickups were all being finalized in those final few months um it actually looked for a while like return of the king might have to be delayed um the edit might change uh which could affect all factors such as music cues howard shaw was using etc so tensions were were running high right right towards the end there but everyone wanted to put their their best into it um and despite the fact it might not look that it might make the delivery date the final reel of the film was locked a few days before the world premiere of return of the king which is incredible to think that it was running that late um i'm not sure i'm especially proud of all the the crunch that must have happened for those those teams um you know there are some shots in the documentaries of some some tensions and tempers flaring um as some of the disagreements happen but um yeah it's it's hard to deny the work that's on screen <laughs> perhaps the most important part of the entire trilogy and definitely one of the most important aspects what well, one of the most influential aspects culturally of the entire film is Gollum Gollum is a very very interesting character who's at the core of Lord of the Rings he is someone who's had the ring for 500 years and has been corrupted by its evil and Gollum is one of the most central sympathetic characters of the entire story while also being a despicable villain um you know he only ever wants the ring for himself he doesn't want to use it for power he doesn't ever want to um try and corrupt the world with it he just wants to sit with it in a cave in the middle of nowhere and covet it um you know his precious as he calls the ring so as a result peter jackson said that the golem was one thing that he wanted to get right um you know as one of the most important pieces of the entire story um you know he said if if we got frodo wrong yes it'd be a shame but people could probably forgive it if they got golem wrong the entire thing wouldn't work and i have to kind of agree with him i think golem is so important but i think they did a good job Gollum went through uh 200 different drawings and 100 maquettes before he was they got a design finalized um weta digital were determined to prove to new line that they could do Gollum and keep him in the house they didn't want Gollum to be farmed off to another production um studio another another visual effects workshop and it was lip sync tests um using the approved golem that got them the job they they proved that you know they they first did an animatic of an action sequence and that wasn't really convincing new line but then they did a lip sync test and proved that the the model they designed for golem could not could not only emote but could 
do a convincing performance and that got them to keep the job um however it was the addition of andy circus which i think changed a lot of the the direction of what happened with Gollum. um andy circus's audition proved to peter jackson that the full acting of the part of Gollum was necessary originally they were they were looking just for a voice actor but Andy Serkis's audition I mean if you've ever seen Andy Serkis perform Gollum in interviews or anything you see how he performs Gollum it's not just a voice he leans into it he becomes Gollum you know there's a scene of him on one of the late shows in America Stephen Colbert I think and he's reading lines from uh, tweets from Donald Trump in Gollum's voice. But to do the role of Gollum, he sits and squats up on the chair and becomes the character. And it's so impressive. Um, and this led, led to Peter Jackson bringing Andy Serkis out to New Zealand, bringing him onto set um, for Gollum to actually act and... Andy Serkis does. He he puts a lot of effort into the role of Gollum. For example, there's the scene in Two Towers where Gollum chases a fish down a small rocky stream. Andy Serkis actually did that, leapt over all those stones in the exact same way, dragging himself on his torso, exactly the same way that that uh, Gollum does in the film. You know, it was it was a physical job. It was demanding on his voice, but his energy created the character. Um, Gollum ended up com being completely redesigned again after uh, Circus's acting to better match his face, but corrupted by the ring, which I think helped when Andy Circus played the role of Smeagol in the flashback because they were able to see Andy Circus in Hobbit makeup and change that face into Gollum. Um, however, it did mean that they had to rebuild like two years of work in the year between Fellowship and Two Towers' releases. Um, Gollum's performance was then redone on the motion capture stage. Um, so he had to recreate a lot of his scenes on the motion capture stage including his song, which was originated by Circus, the song of him catching the fish. Um, motion capture was an almost completely new technique at the time. I don't think many films had used it. Uh, I think it had been used, but definitely not much. Um, and... To use it to the extent that the Lord of the Rings did, I think, was almost unheard of. Um, some of the animations still needed to be tweaked um, with keyframing uh, to sort of combine the two styles of traditional um, visual effects animation, uh, traditional computer animation, and motion capture animation. Um, so, for example, the motion capture only includes like the posing of the limbs, not the posing of the fingers, the hands. Uh, so that would have to be done with traditional animation. Um, quite often, the visual effects team actually rotoscoped Gollum, or roto-animated, I suppose, uh, over the 
in-camera performance of Andy Serkis. Um, each of the shots with Gollum were actually shot twice, uh, once with Andy Serkis in frame and then one with Andy Serkis out of frame um, with the actors essentially miming the role. Um, uh, so Elijah Wood and Sean Bean would be acting, um, but Gollum wouldn't be there. Um, which was how they intended to do the film at first. But what they often found was that the plates, the, the film plates that they shot with Circus tended to be the better performances. And they had the real act interaction between the three actors, um, which improved the performance. And they'd have to find a way to make those work. They'd have to interact. For example, there's a fight scene between... Um, Sam and Gollum, which was acted out by um, uh, Sean Astin and Andy Serkis. And in the fight, Andy Serkis headbutts, does like a fake headbutt towards Sean Astin, which causes him to reel back. Um, but then they did, the animation team decided they wanted Gollum to sort of like climb onto Sam in kind of an inhuman way, which obviously Andy Serkis wouldn't have been able to do because he's a, a much larger, um, has a much larger frame than Gollum does. Um, but then of course the headbutt didn't make sense, so they had to work out well what is Sam reacting to that knocks his head back, and they used um. They used a hand, they used Gollum grabbing his hair and sort of wrestling his head. Um, which I thought was a great way of doing it. It's good, it's good stopgap motion um, to, to use the footage. I mean, they, they did still shoot Mayan plates for some other aspects, you know. Um, for example, the battle with Shelob uses Mayan plates um, where Sean Astin is essentially just acting against nothing because they couldn't exactly build a scale model of she Shelob or use an actor um to come in and do it. Although I did think that do you think they used part of Shelob like Shelob's mandibles? Um but it's nothing done to the same extent that they could do with Gollum. Um sometimes renders would be done overnight for dailies and they might find they might come in the morning and find that something could have gone wrong with the renders, like Gollum's hair standing straight up on end, or um, you know his hands being bent at obscene angles, or things like that. Um, which did happen. They show some of these outtakes in the documentaries, but uh, yeah, I think Andy Serkis's Gollum became so iconic, and I think it's hard to argue that we'd have a lot of the CGI cr characters and creatures that we see nowadays without Gollum. Um, you know, I, I don't think we could see Thanos, for example, without Gollum. Um, you know, towards the end of filming, some of the final motion, some of the final scenes they did for the pickups actually did the motion capture suit while filming the scene so the motion capture of Gollum's performance would be done as the scene was being filmed <laughs> um, so that Andy Serkis wouldn't have to recreate those scenes 
on the motion capture stage because they'd already be done. The motion capture would already be there. And that's so incredible. Um, so, yeah, Gollum really was a um, a standout piece of film history um, that I think Lord of the Rings will always be known for. And the performance is incredible. Even though Gollum is CGI, you never once watching it think this isn't a real character. The performance is there. The the visual is there. And some of Gollum's best scenes are scenes of him talking. Like the, 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 the almost schizophrenic argument that he has between his Gollum and Smeagol personas is iconic. And it was all accomplished in camera by Andy Serkis and then animated by the animators based on that visual performance. So yeah, I have a lot of lot of respect for Gollum and the the effect he had on filmmaking. There's no wonder he went on to become as beloved as he did and Andy Serkis deserves every success for his work as Gollum and the other CGI characters he's played since, such as King Kong and Caesar. Um, you know, there's a reason why he he is the person playing so many of these roles. There's a reason why he um, is there, for example, giving actors like Josh Brolin and Mark Ruffalo tips in the Marvel Universe to improve their performance. Because he knows what he's doing. He knows what he's talking about. And Gollum's performance is so good because Andy Serkis was so good. It's like even things like, you know, Gollum literally scrabbling around on all fours over rocks and stuff. It's because Andy Serkis is a mountaineer. He's been mountaineering since he was a young man. Um, you know, so that he actually climbs rocks in his spare time. So Gollum does the same thing, and it's all there on camera. And the performance he put in, it was absolutely incredible. And seeing the behind-the-scenes footage of him actually acting, you know, these these very physically demanding things, it's very, very impressive. So as I said, Lord of the Rings released in 2001. December 10th, 2001 is when Fellowship of the Ring released. Um, the city of Wellington in New Zealand even changed its name to Middle Earth for a day uh, when Fellowship premiered to honour the making of the entire film trilogy there. Um, Fellowship of the Ring, I think, kind of flew under the radar a little bit. It wasn't the most successful film that year instead harry potter was um because philosopher's stone also released that same year um harry potter I, i'm not a huge fan of harry potter anyway but i do think that first film has aged spectacularly poorly especially when compared to lord of the rings um you know, if you compare, for example, the troll sequences, there's a troll in the bathrooms in Harry Potter. That troll is just bad CGI. 
like even at the time it's bad cgi and then you compare it to the the cave troll that was used in the battle of moria in fellowship and it's it's night and day it really really is um the cave troll is so much better in in lord of the rings so lord of the rings i think has just aged so much better um two towers however was a much much bigger deal when it released um i mean apparently towards the end of its theatrical run fellowship even included a uh a brief trailer for the two towers um towards the end of its theatrical run i i never saw that version of the film um Yeah, Fellowship made forty seven point two million in its opening weekend in the US and made over eight hundred and ninety seven million worldwide. Two Towers smashed that with sixty two million in its first US weekend and then nine hundred and forty seven million worldwide. Um and then Return of the King went on to beat that again. Um you know, getting uh, 72.6 million in its first US weekend and then became the second film after Titanic to gross over a billion dollars worldwide um, and it went on to make 1.146 billion worldwide which is yeah even today that's a that would be in a very very impressive amount you know more and more films make over a billion dollars nowadays um but even today, over a billion dollars is still impressive. You know, back in 2003, like I said, it was only the second film to do it. This was practically unheard of, you know. And, you know, all three films were made for a budget of roughly $281 million. Um you know, because all three films were shot together, so a lot of elements of the production could be carried over into the next film, uh, which means they they average out about sort of $93 million a piece, um, which is quite modest for a blockbuster nowadays. Um, you know, expensive for the time, but a very, very modest amount. Um and the films went on to have enormous widespread acclaim and they're ranked among some of the uh, among the greatest film trilogy ever made um you know people people describe them as you know one of the most ambitious and phenomenally successful dream projects of all time um los angeles times said the trilogy will not soon if ever find its equal you know they're incredible. They really, really are. Um, they went on to receive uh, Oscar nominations as well. Uh, Fellowship of the Ring earned 13 nominations, which was the most of any film at the time, and won four of them. Um, two Towers won two awards from its six nominations, and uh, Return of the King won every category it was nominated in at the 76th academy awards um setting the current oscar record for the highest clean sweep um 
with its 11 Academy Award wins, tying along with um, Ben-Hur and Titanic. But yeah, the highest clean sweep Oscars. Uh, Return of the King also became only the second sequel to win the Oscar for Best Picture after The Godfather Part 2. In addition to that, though, uh, members of the production crew won the Academy Award for Technical Achievement for the rendering of skin textures on creatures in Return of the King, and Stephen Regulus uh, won the Academy Award for Scientific and Engineering for the design and development of the Massive program. So, yeah. The world official world premiere for Return of the King was even held in Wellington, New Zealand, uh, 145,000 people, according to estimates, uh, turned out to see the parade um, that the, the cast and crew undertook from Parliament towards the theatre. And apparently the uh, showing at the theatre was the first time that Peter Jackson actually saw the final cut in its entirety um, due to just how frenetic the edit was. Like I said, it was only a few days beforehand that they'd actually delivered the film to New Line. <laughs> Um, the there was a world tour off the back of the Return of the King premiere, um, premieres around the world. Um, uh, one of the final ones uh, was actually in Oslo, and Viggo Mortensen and uh, co-producer Rick Paris speak about this on the documentary, and they say that there was only there was only Rick, the two of them, as well as Andy Serkis and Bernard Hill. In attendance, um, but apparently the 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 premiere took place in an arena, and the premiere opened with two hundred actors reenacting the highlights of the first two films live on stage, um, and they were all just fans, like actors and stunt people, but they were all fans who were just doing it they weren't being paid for it they just rehearsed for six months and did it just because they loved tolkien and the lord of the rings um the final oscars season uh for return of the king and led to it getting wins after all of its previous nominations um you know the, the wins were you know in previous years fellowship and two towers had won awards for like cinematography and score and you know more sort of technical um categories but return of the king like i said it swept the awards won every category it had been nominated for including best picture best director um and the entire cast and crew who were there went to the party afterwards hosted by the onering.net fan community i believe most of the charter members of onering.net are credited in Return of the King as well. <laughs> the final shot of Return of the King actually was filmed after the Oscars party. Um, <laughs> they got some um, some of the more skull shots uh, for the Paths of the Dead that were used in the extended cut. And that was officially the final shot, but it actually took place weeks after the Oscars party. Um yeah, for a, I mean, for a lot of people, this was seven or eight years' work of their life. Um, but for most of them, it would still have been two to five years' work, most of the actors and such. Um, 
and everyone interviewed in the documentary said even though there might be some some negatives to being associated with a project for that long and you know none of them seem to look on the production negatively um everyone seems really proud of their work and their investment on it uh on the lord of the rings and i think it shows in the final work and in the even in the productions of the documentaries hearing everyone talk about it how everyone seems proud to have been a part of this lord of the rings the film as well is i think it did for film what the original novel did for literature in some ways in that proving there was a an adult audience for fantasy stories you know tolkien described it as you know an adult fairy tale you know he that's what that's how he described the lord of the rings an adult fairy tale and it really is that sort of high concept fantasy story and proof that people will watch a long movie if it's if it's good if it's rewarding which is something we're also seeing now with the the marvel films or you know i think some people did shy away from longer films after avatar was released um which was a long film that didn't really do much um whereas lord of the rings has a lot going on um you know, Lord of the Rings, I don't think, ever feels like it's dragging when you watch it. Um, you know, and especially if you want to watch all three of the movies, the extended cuts, as as most people have nowadays. You know, that's it's a long time investment. It's 11 hours of film. But it never drags. Or, or very rarely does. Uh, you might feel like an, a slight drag, but then everything picks up again very quickly. Um, and everything is realised on screen in a way that makes the whole world of Middle-earth feel real and believable. Uh, you know, there's there's very few criticisms of these films. There are some, sure. Uh, one common criticism is that the the film has too many endings, um but originally it had more they filmed some of the appendix things saying what would what would happen to legolas and gimli and things like that but every one of those endings feels earned and even then re-watching it i don't think there are too many endings i think the i think the only way you could say that is if you see all the endings after the you bow to no one in minas tirith as superfluous um, because that is that is essentially the earned ending, isn't it? That's where Aragorn gets crowned king, and he says, you know, after they've after Frodo's been saved and rescued, and everyone in Gondor bows to the hobbits, and that is definitely the earned ending. That is the the natural conclusion for a lot of the story arcs. The only way you could then argue that the other endings are too many endings is if they're there's too much going on but there's only 15 minutes of the film left at that point i actually timed it 15 minutes of the actual film before the end credit title card that actually says the end and within those 15 minutes we see the hobbits return to the shire we see um sam marry rosie 
we see Frodo finishing the the Red Book of Westermarch, um, and talking about how his wound never really healed. And we see Frodo, Galadriel, Celeborn, Elrond, and Gandalf, as well as Bilbo, go off in the boat from the Grey Havens. Now, the Grey Haven scene, especially, is the final ending, and it's quite long. The other bits are a bit of a montage, almost. Uh, and when I say the Grey Havens is long, it's not to its detriment. It's it's earned. It's a powerful emotional goodbye for these these final characters. Uh, a conclusion to Bilbo's story and to Frodo's. And then after that, we see Sam return to Bag End with his wife and children. And yeah, I don't, I don't think there are too many endings. Every ending feels earned. It feels like a consequence of one of more emotional arcs or character arcs within the trilogy. Um, you know, Sam and Rosie is something that's hinted at very early on in Fellowship, um, and it's something mentioned by Sam throughout Return of the King as well, saying, you know, when if I get back, I'm going to ask that woman to marry me. So we see that he does, and it's oh, it's 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 lovely, it's beautiful. Um, I think the film as well, because of its use of you catastrophe that's in the story, has so much emotional power to it. Um, you know, things like the arrival of Gandalf at the end of Two Towers, um, during the finale of um. Uh, the Battle of Helm's Deep, or the the charge of the March of the Ents, or the charge of the Rohirrim, it creates these stirring emotional moments when you're watching it, um, and that, as well as all the conclusions, makes it hard not to to feel the power of this film and to feel emotionally invested within it. And it's incredible, and I think it's, I think the film is a testament to uh, the strength of its writing, um, both Tolkien's writing as well as the adaptation. Uh, the adaptation as well also uses the visual medium fantastically. Um, two scenes that spring to mind: there's a, a ninety-second sequence of the um, the signal beacons being lit. Um, panning across the earth, uh, panning across Middle Earth from uh, Gondor to Rohan to a rousing score, um, which is phenomenal. Um, or um, the the shot of um, Denethor taking Faramir to the funeral mausoleum and saying there is no hope in men. And then the camera pans up to the the white tree of Gondor, and we see one flower, um, suggesting that no, the king is returning. And then later on, during Aragorn's coronation, we see that full that tree in full bloom, um, due to the return of the king. Yeah, it's absolutely incredible visual storytelling. That's done very very well. Um, Yeah, there's there's a lot in this film, but I think it 
I think the film did prove that there was a market for adult fantasy done well. I don't think we'd see things like, you know, that the novel of Lord of the Rings inspired so much of adult fantasy. Um, and it's very clear that the film of Lord of the Rings also did the same thing for for cinema. Um, I mean, it came out around the same time as the Harry Potter films, but the Harry Potter films were, were children's stories. They are the, the family children's stories. Lord of the Rings was, you know, it's a, it's a family film in some respects, but it's also, it's an it's an an adult fantasy story, and then you see how that has influenced things such as Game of Thrones, for example. You know, Game of Thrones started in twenty eleven. It went into pre production a few years before that. Um, you know, so within 2003 to 2011, so seven, within those seven years, and probably about five years after the release of Return of the King, you started getting the pre-production for something like Game of Thrones, because the, while the books for Game of Thrones were already successful, the idea of an adult fantasy market existing and wanting to see something like this was an idea that a lot of a lot of film companies might not have been necessarily willing to bank on you know and yeah the so yeah you you wouldn't have had you know, while while there are a lot of things that were probably rushed into production or adapted badly off the back of the Lord of the Rings, um, for example, what was done to the the Aragon novels, who which I know have a huge fan base, or um, the television adaptions of um, Ursula K. Le Guin's Earthsea series, um, which were apparently atrocious. Um, you know, I do think we wouldn't necessarily have the adaptations of something like Game of Thrones or Wheel of Time without uh, Lord of the Rings. And that's just part of the, the legacy and impact. I mean, you know, the films, Lord of the Rings eventually led to the production of the Hobbit trilogy. Um, the Hobbit trilogy was much more divisive than Lord of the Rings. Um, I'm I'm not going to delve too much into it. If you want to learn more about the Hobbit trilogy and what really went on with it and some of the negatives, um, Lindsay Ellis on YouTube has done a fantastic video series about it. Um, but yeah, it had a rushed and a very divisive production. Um, Guillermo del Toro was originally attached. It did two years of pre-production only for... Um, only to be let go by the studio, uh, supposedly amicably, but then everything suddenly rushed into pre-production um, for for Peter Jackson's version. Um, Warner Brothers was involved as the studio at that point, not New Line, so there was uh, a lot of studio interference on their part. Um, the Hobbit films also had a much more mixed reception upon release um, and diminishing box office returns as a result. Um, very, very divisive among audiences and critics. 
Um, there was a lot of changes as well in the New Zealand filming landscape. There was a lot of uh, calls for equity off the back of the Lord of the Rings, attempting to for New Zealand groups to get similar treatment to British and American film unions uh, and how it led to an industrial action around the time that The Hobbit was filming, um, which actually ended up being unsuccessful and led to New Zealand's Hobbit law, uh, which made workers independent contractors um, and benefited Warner Brothers with tax subsidies, tax subsidies while the workers actually earned less um which led to sort of a stifling of a lot of creatives in New Zealand um while foreign foreign productions could go there and save money um so for example avatar was filmed in New Zealand the avatar sequels have been filmed in New Zealand <sighs> there's also been some unfortunate news of um sleaze and um you know, scandal of the sort of type you see in a lot of production houses at Weta, which I read about in research for this, which was a unfortunate reading. Weta Digital apparently had, uh, you know, huge drives of porn and uh, a lot of women were treated inappropriately or propositioned and all sorts of other things like that. And stuff like that is heartbreaking to read after I've praise their work on on this film because i do think the film is not just peter jackson's lord of the rings or new lines lord of the rings it is you know so many people behind the scenes put their heart and soul into this and it shows and to then read that some of those people may be responsible for you know mistreatment and suffering of others is it's unfortunate i don't think there's been any prosecutions or anything or or any conclusive reporting i think everything's still up in the air but it's not something you want to hear there's also going to be a lord of the rings tv series coming soon from amazon um potentially following some of the plots of the silmarillion um Amazon's already paid like a billion dollars for five seasons. Only one, I think two of which have been filmed already. One of which uh, was filmed in New Zealand. The rest moved to Scotland and the UK. I'm not sure how I feel about it. I want to see it. Uh, I think after the, what happened with the Hobbit films, trying to turn what was a lighthearted children's story into a Lord of the Rings prequel. I'm dubious, but at the same time, the Silmarillion has a very different tone um, to The Hobbit, one that more closely matches The Lord of the Rings. So, so if anything is going to fit as a Lord of the Rings prequel series, it should be The Silmarillion. So we'll see. Until then, we can only uh, look to the future, as the uh, popular phrase in Lord of the Rings itself says, the road goes ever on and on. Thank you once again, my friends, for joining me on today's episode. Um, 
I hope uh, people have found this informative and entertaining. Um, personally, I was fascinated watching these documentaries on the Lord of the Rings DVDs for the first time. Um, anyone who may have already seen them maybe probably didn't enjoy this episode as much. Um, but for me, it was absolutely fascinating to get that behind-the-scenes look at the filmmaking. Um, the Lord of the Rings trilogy, I do think is a masterpiece of cinema. I'd put it as one of my favourite uh, film experiences. Um, I think you have to qualify it as a single film rather than three. It's It was always designed as the one film, and I think it is one film rather than a trilogy. Um... So yeah, that's that's my view on Lord of the Rings, the film, the novel, and everything in between. Um, that concludes um, my episodes for the year. Uh, I'm going to take a, a small break over Christmas, and then I'm going to release some new episodes next year. Um, this podcast is going to be um, still being released in podcast format, wherever you may be listening to it now. Uh, but I'm also going to make it available on YouTube, um, which should lead to a wider audience as well, so I'm going to need some time to do that. I am hoping to return in the new year. My first episode within the new year will be talking about the MCU again. Always a popular topic, I've noticed, among my audience. Um, We're specifically going to be talking about... Um, Spider-Man uh, No Way Home and possibly Hawkeye there are some rumours of things that may be in the works um, that we may be expecting to see which will uh, if these rumours turn out to be true that's going to dictate the focus of the episode if not then I'm going to be discussing all things spider um, so Sony's previous Spider-Man attempts um, where perhaps they went wrong, what they did well, uh, as well as both the the three Marvel Spider-Man films um, and uh, perhaps even Spider-Verse um, now that the sequel for that has a trailer. So either way, it's going to be something... Marvel focused either Spider-Man related or potentially what's upcoming Um, so if these rumours don't turn out to be true then we'll get the Spider-Man episode if the rumours do turn out to be true we'll get the episode on that first and then the Spider-Man episode will probably be moved later on um I'm not sure exactly what date we're looking at coming back. I will probably post an update uh, everywhere. So please subscribe get any to get any notifications of new episodes. And I will give you a Season 3 preview um, probably a week or two before we know when it's releasing. Okay? Thank you very much for listening. 
Uh, as always, please use any of the social media links that are going to be upcoming to get in touch with me, uh, to stay in contact, to suggest ideas for new episodes, to join any of the discussions. I'd very much love to hear from any of you that are out there listening. Until next time, take care of yourselves, look after yourselves, get the vaccine if you're able, weigh your masks. This new uh, Omicron variant is out there and it's quite scary. Um, but, you know, stay safe, look after yourself, take care of your physical and mental health, for the, both of them are really important. And have a very good Christmas or other holiday dom- denomination if you are not Christian or atheist. And have a happy new year. Until next year, take care, everyone. Thank you, as always, for joining me here at Gardo Goes Geek. I have been your host, Gardo. If you would like to discuss the topic of this episode or any other episode with me, or would perhaps like to discuss topics that you might like me to cover in a future episode, then as always, I invite you to reach out and contact me. I can be found at Gardo on Reddit, at Gardo Hedgehog on Twitter, or at Gardo on Instagram. I look forward to any discussions that you wish to bring to me. And until next time, take care of yourselves. <laughs>